Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Have the very great pleasure now of welcoming back to good health and in the last circulation our friend W.C. Fields, who makes his first appearance since a serious illness which kept him off the stage and out of pictures for over a year. And now he returns fully recovered to say hello, W.C. Fields. Mr. Fields, I'm sure you'll feel at home because here's your old Follies piano player, Werner Jansen. Oh, yes. Hi, Jackson. <laughs> I've known Werner Jackson for quite a spell. Uh, Mr. Fields, the name is Jansen, oh. Werner Jansen. Oh, yeah, that's right, Jansen. Yeah. Hi, Werner. <laughs> Cute little fellow, isn't he? Well, uh, uh, how's everything? Uh, uh, Mr. Fields, that, that's Charlie McCarthy. Oh, yeah, so it is. Honey, <laughs> Hi, Charlie. Uh, how do you do, Mr. Fields? How do you do? Been on quite a little wait since I saw him last <laughs> night. <laughs> now, Mr. Fields, listen. Will, will you tell us about the accident that started your illness? Oh, yes, yeah, half a tick. You are Mr. Bergen, aren't you? No, 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 Mr. Fields. That's Miss Harding. Oh, yes, I see. Yes, I know Miss Harding very well. How's your partner, Miss Laurel? <laughs> No, 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 Mr. Fields. You're confused with Laurel and Hardy. Oh, yeah, how silly of me. I beg your pardon, Miss Laurel. Now, uh... <laughs> Mr. Fields, listen. Everybody is impatiently waiting to hear about your recovery. Now, now, if you'll kindly... Yes, 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 certainly. Excuse me. Excuse me, Mr. Bergen. No, no, no. I, I'm Don Amici, remember? Oh, yes, yes. Remind me to ask the dummy a few questions after I said hello to the folks. <laughs> Yeah. How old is Charlie McCarthy? He's 12 years old. 12 years old? How interesting. How old is the little lipper will sing me a song? Yeah, I will if you give me $10. $10, oh, eh? He's more than 12. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's really older than he looks, you see. He was hewn out of an old oak tree. Uh, his face looks as though he's hewn out of a piece of sassafras root. <laughs> Oh, is that so, huh? Well, if they had to cut your face out of a piece of wood, they'd have to use redwood for a nose. <laughs> and an ample bit of it, too, I might say. Uh, you too, eh? Charlie, Charlie. All right, Mr. Fields. Now about that serious illness of yours. Oh, yes, of course. I was pretty redwood for a nose. <laughs> He's a pretty fresh little punk, isn't he? Redwood for a nose. You're full of termites. Uh, uh, the guy is drunk. Take him away. Draw his flies. Don't care. I may be drunk, but I'll be sober tomorrow, and you'll still be full of termites. 
I'm glad to see you looking so well, W.C. Uh, you, don't, you don't mind if I call you W.C., do you? Oh, uh, no, I guess not. Oh, it's a bit confusing, though. <laughs> In Europe, royalty always referred to me as the W.C. <laughs> Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo will have to incorporate all the honed skills of comic timing, careful choreography, and a dash of begrudge, begrudge spark <laughs> to culminate this concoction worthy of the flask for the show's big star. For all the experiences that would slam, press, and mold the shape of one William Claude Duncanfield into W.C. Fields would find themselves holding and summarized in one of his finest outings. How was he able to attain such lore around his ability to latch onto laughter? Some said it was his delivery, some said it was his brash manner, but many people know that it was nothing more than a gift from the comedy gods. Tonight we will receive one of these presents of the past with Norman Z. McLeod's 1934 laugh riot, It's a Gift. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Open the door for Mr. Merkel! What? Open the door, Mr. Buckle, the blind man! How about my kumquats? What'd you say? Kumquats! Wait! Nothing but just a little glassware. Uh, what do you got it there for? Come Go on. on. All right. Put it in there. And uh, now, uh, what can I do? Uh, what can I do for you? Have you got any chewing gum? Uh, yes, we have. Uh, yes, we have. Yes, yes, we have. How about my kumquats? Coming, 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 coming. Now you just as. Now you sit right here till I come back. I'll bring you right back to you. Sit right there. Do you know a man by the name of Lafon? Carl Lafon. Capital L, small a. Capital F, small o, small n, small g. Lafon. Carl Lafon. No, I don't know Carl Lafon. Capital L, small a. Capital F, small o, small n, small g. And if I did know Carl Lafon, I wouldn't admit it. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. 
Having already made a splash in talking pictures with International House, Six of a Kind, The Old Fashioned Way, and many more, Fields was at the top of his showbiz game. For his next vehicle, he would draw even further back into the past by recreating the structured tone of one of his stage triumphs, which would later become one of cinema's most beloved comedies. But in the grand scheme of Fields' career, it's a gift can feel often overlooked in favor of other ventures like You Can't Cheat an Honest Man, My Little Chickadee, and The Bank Dick. Where does It's a Gift fall in his legacy? How have we overlooked it? And how has it found its way into the giggle fests we see today? Well, in order to discuss the follies of Fields, you need someone who shows an unabashed love for the man. The Ballyhoo has such a person in the form of a podcaster who has hoofed it just as much as Fields did to make his dreams a reality. A dream that you can hear each week on John of All Trades, the show that brings you one-on-ones with folks of many and all occupations to ask the important question of, what do you do? Well, today we shall ask this gentleman, how do you do, as we welcome to the Ballyhoo Mr. John Ekstrom. Zach, what a pleasure. What a thrill. <laughs> and what an intro. Also, I appreciate the fact that you open the show with a welcome, welcome, welcome the same way that I do. <laughs> you know what? It, you know what? It happened when I first started listening to your show. It was around the time that I started do, doing real nerds full time. And okay. um, and I and Brad would play your promo in front of our show. <laughs> so I'd listen back to our <laughs> show and I'm like, you know, I'm going to have to listen to this John, Tro- John of all trade show one day. <laughs> And I did. And one of the first episodes I naturally went to was one from years before I even met you, which was your interview with them. Um, oh, and sure. you got some honesty out of Ryan and Brad that I've never heard before. <laughs> I heard stories that I still I had never heard those stories before, like of just like the way he was trying to interview the artist of 30 Days of Night. And the guy was responding to softball questions with like dead babies. And like, yeah, right. This, this is. I'm like this this guy knows what he's doing with his interviews like <laughs> dude, well dude I mean if if you're not there to get something out of a guest that they haven't given before mm-hmm. why even be there Yeah well and that's and so, oh sorry go I'm ahead. with yeah. you <laughs> Yeah no it's but it's, I didn't mean to interrupt it's, it is interesting though because you do you uh you said something in that show that I still stick to which is just like you you try to go for different questions, not just the softball. Um, And I've tried to take some of that into my own experiences with Ballyhoo and um, Shamley before it, where you're trying to, trying to gauge the person's response to a piece of material. So it's not like I'm asking them about their occupation like you do or different questions like that. It really is trying to dig into their opinion on film, which sometimes is tricky especially with films this old, because <laughs> careful how you walk. <laughs> uh, yeah, there there are a lot of landmines there Yeah, in terms of, you know, different cultural norms and mores and things like that. So you, you could unintentionally lead someone into a bear trap that you didn't necessarily mean to. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, in terms of sensibility, I mean, things are always aging. I recently saw an interview with Seth Rogen where he said, look, if you don't look back at jokes you made years ago, and cringe at them you're not growing properly as an artist Mm -hmm. and i i thought that was a really useful frame here's the other thing zach i've been doing pr now for the last 15 years professionally yeah i can smell boilerplate a mile away (laughs) and so if someone is like reading me their press release i gotta kick them off their axis because like if if i wanted to read your press release i just read the thing yeah you'd recite it like a monologue (laughs) right like i i could just do that that'd be fine but like let's be here let's be real let's have a conversation let's dig into the shit 
No, oh, yeah. Like that. That's why we're here. Like, let's do it because anything less is a disservice to the listener. Yeah, exactly. Now, the now the reason I'm going to start off with a typical softball question is because this audience of Ballyhoo, um, we extend a little bit beyond real nerds, so they may not be familiar with John of All Trades in the UK. I would like for you to tell people what do you do. <laughs> sure. <laughs> So that's perfect. Yeah. John of All Trades grew out of a couple of things. One, I have a background in radio. So my background is in punk rock radio. I was in college. I had I hosted the punk show every Friday night and I got my start interviewing bands and bands are a particularly interesting group to interview because they get interviewed a zillion times. And if you don't come correct, they're going to tune out. And like the problem with college radio particularly is because you're young. A lot of people make the mistake of saying, man, I really hope these guys like me or like maybe we could be friends when they come through town. Maybe we can party together and stuff. And it's like, no, fuck that. That's a fool's errand. And like you're chasing something that is very, very unlikely. So my philosophy was, look, I get this amount of time with this. I'm going to ask them everything I want to know. Mm hmm. And so my background in that, and then also at the time, I've been blogging on the internet since 2000. So good God, that's more than 20 years. I hadn't actually put a number to that. That's <laughs> Do you horrifying. feel old yet, Grandpa? <laughs> Dude, I got two kids, man. And they'll make you feel old every single day. Yeah. So <laughs> like, um, I, I've, I've herniated a disc in my back now three times, okay? So oh. I don't need any help feeling old. Oh, be careful. My dad fell off a ladder once, broke his back, and he's had it fucked up ever since. Ah. Oh, dude, I fucked it up when I was 17. <laughs> and, and so, like, here's the other thing. Um, my, my friend Jason, who I think you know. Yeah, like, Jason, my, was, Jason Taylor. He was on your show recently, actually, which I was happy that you got him on a mic. <laughs> no shit, right? Because he's not into that. No. So that was for my seven-year anniversary. But he always told me, he's like, I love standing next to you at parties. Because when we're meeting someone new, you know the next interesting question to ask them to keep the conversation going. Mm -hmm. And I'm just sort of naturally curious about people. So Brad told me, Brad Haig, who is the common link kind of amongst all of this and like one of your recent episodes. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of an inspiration for you to get involved in podcasting. He was for me, too, mm -hmm. because he'd been doing it. He showed me how to do it. He told me the equipment to buy. He showed me how to edit like on and on and on. Brad is like the oracle of podcasting and totally criminally underappreciated. He, he is. And when it comes to Denver podcasters, I know that there are niches and I'm not going to get, you know, super specific here because that would be rude. But right. one thing I will say about Brad is, is that and this year we are celebrating 10 years of Real Nerds podcast, uh, seven of which I've been floating in and out of until consistency. <laughs> and uh, right. Brad has always been there from the start, innovating out here and showing people that it can be done on a regular basis. We have not. We have not missed a week of recording. Um, even if the I, oh, e even if the episodes take a take a minute to get out, we always record each week. And the thing that uh, the thing that Brad did ultimately was, I, I had I had dipped my toe in podcasting in high school, but not on a sincere level. And when sure. he when he was encouraging me as far back as trying to do like different types of podcasts like other than real nerds like i didn't take it seriously at first but then the hitchcock thing came up he guided me through what i needed to do he then showed me how to 
figure out the feeds for the show. And by the end of starting this show, I texted him apologies up the wazoo going like, <laughs> I'm sorry if I've ever made you feel terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but you did figure it out and you, I did your, your show I think is very beneficial to people who are looking for a guidance in their life because I've always felt that we live in a current economic and societal mainframe right now that has a lot of people wandering, wondering what it is they want to do with their lives and wondering what the path may be. And you give examples for people, whether yeah. that's film critics, beer enthusiasts, people who start their own podcast. I know you've talked to Kat Jaffe from the House of Pod and sure. you, you've, you've developed a show that I think is a resource for people who are looking for their life goal, which it frankly sounds daunting. That's why I stick to movies and <laughs> and not the bigger questions. Well, I mean, Zach, what I can tell you is I'm just naturally curious about people. And I like I, I use this example as the origin story on my website. I used to work in corporate affairs. And so I did PR for a Fortune 500 company. Yep. And there was one time I was in an elevator and I'm wearing my suit. It's the end of the day. I run into a colleague and he says, where are you going? And I go, I have to go to the fucking governor's mansion again. Oh, the governor's mansion story. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he's like, oh, you have to go to the fucking governor's mansion again. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. <laughs> and, and I go, right. In a vacuum, that's a cool thing, right? That, that is something badass. Like not everyone gets to go to the governor's mansion. I'd already been there twice in one fucking week. <laughs> and so like in my job, when it came to PR, you know, I interfaced with reporters. I talked to current sitting U.S. senators. I knew the governors of the immediate surrounding states. They recognized me. And so like that wasn't instead of my regular job. Mm. That was on top of my regular job. Yeah. Pulling so double duty. The, yeah, exactly. Well, not exactly double duty, but it's just part of the job, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's after business hours. You have to go and do this shit. And it, it occurred to me, I'm like, for every cool job out there, no matter what it is, there is someone who has done that job for long enough to be bored off their ass by it. Yeah. And those are the people I want to talk to, because like if you get to a place that is viewed aspirationally, then what is the journey to get there? If you have a job that other people want, how did you get there? How did you achieve that? That fascinates the me to no end, which is why I've done this show now for seven plus years. I have n more than 300 episodes because not all of them are numbered. You're, you're catching, you're catching up to the real nerds count. Like so I'll never catch them. Are you <laughs> shitting me, Zach? Um, those guys are insane because well, I will take weeks off and those guys don't. Well, wait, it's um, it's because if we're not taking a week off from a regular review, we're doing a film explosion. <laughs> exactly. It, it's like, it's like how chopped is on at all hours of the day on food network. <laughs> right. That's like real nerds is like the chopped of podcasting. So in my case, I won Westward best of Denver in 2017. Yeah. So I, I won reader's choice for that. That was awesome. And now, and like, I've turned this into a whole thing where I not only have my show, but I produce other shows. Mm -hmm. And so people ask me, they're like, do you make money from podcasting? And I go, yes, but not in the way that you think. Yeah. And so, because monetizing a podcast is a task that is more daunting than it actually seen and there are several avenues to it that range exactly. the gamut from sponsorship onto patreons and stuff like that so you're not dealing with you're not dealing with a with a business that has the same sustainable model as like say a corporate right. job um, yeah it, and it's 
it, it's a different kind of hustle, but I've been at it long enough now. And again, it all comes back to Brad. I cannot give Brad enough credit here for his influence, like positive influence on my life in terms of what we're doing here. So to that end, I have my own little like nice cottage industry of podcasts that I do. John of all trades is the flagship. Mm -hmm. I'm super proud of it. I've talked to so many people that I wanted to talk to, whether they're wall street guys or people who cut hair for a living or, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, nonprofit people, comedians, actors, you know, I've talked to Kyle gas from tenacious D yeah, um, <laughs> which that that episode was awesome. I talked to Holly Shand, who was on Real World Road Rules Challenge, which to this day is still my highest downloaded episode. That's crazy. <laughs> People have an appetite for that show, man, that you would never expect unless you were into it. It's well, it's definitely out of my sphere, but like it's sure. <laughs> well, I mean, they're not they're not doing challenges like, hey, uh, who directed this film? Where, you know, but it's like, who can eat the weirdest shit on a beach somewhere? Yeah, if they right? go to that other route, I think I could win. <laughs> I, I'll bet I'll bet you could. Um, but like I've had Jim O'Hare from Parks and Recreation, who was awesome. Mm -hmm. I had Jello B. Offer from the Dead Kennedys. I talked to like I going back to my roots. I talked to people from bands that I love, whether it's Less Than Jake or the Mad Caddies or Strung Out or like elevating local music. It's a show that I can't quit. Yeah, like, I can't not do it because it, it takes up space in my head. And I mean, you know, dude, doing a podcast is a fucking pain in the ass. Yeah, it's um, it's well, and then like it's it's one that I've learned to just kind of appreciate the different ins and outs and the different challenges. So like, this will be a little bit beyond um the release of the Batman episode that um that you mentioned earlier. But yeah, at the at the last minute, I decided, you know what, I really like the opening theme to that Batman 66 movie and I was down to the wire because I tried to keep myself on a deadline of a release every Thursday Friday at the latest depending on fluctuating schedule to day work and so I was just like you know what fuck it I'm taking the extra hour I'm going to record the little acknowledgement rewrite it a little bit and try to work the work the lay-in and whatnot and it's not perfect but it's like that's the kind of things that I obsess over and they annoy me in the moment but then afterwards I'm like you know what I'm glad I did that <laughs> and I'm going to keep doing it <laughs> Um, but you, t you mentioned the different people that you talk to and actually like one thing that I, one of the reasons why your show is, uh, is an influence is because like, I have looked at what you've done and listened to the shows that you've done and the people that you've talked to. I don't think I would have been able to talk to Leonard Malton, uh, back in February for a panel at a Jack Benny convention. If it hadn't have been for knowing like, you know, like this, you can talk to the people you want to talk to. This isn't yeah. this isn't a barrier. Was I still nervous? Fuck yes, I was. But that, <laughs> but that doesn't excuse the fact that it's, it can be done. And on top of that, there are people in my sphere that you have interviewed, um, whether it be Risa Scott or um, sure. uh, the late Patrick Sheridan, who was a big, big influence in the Denver film community. Oh, God. Yeah. That one hit so hard. I re-released that when he died. I re-recorded the intro. I don't know if you listened to that. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And it uh, was... That was super raw and i love that you put a link to the memorial fund in there and just like yeah. that actually was another reason why like there were certain things that were happening in the world as i was dropping serpent episodes that i'm like you know like i can put a link in here to a charity and whatnot and try to like raise awareness yep. wherever i can because that's that's important and, and sheridan was one of those very influential people within the film community that always oh, yeah. encouraged others um he, he was um he's part of the reason that we had a great leading role in a film that i did back in 2012 uh with michael vasicek um and oh yeah i i can't i can't thank patrick enough for that and 
I, I saw him not too like a year before he passed and it was it, it was a little downturn but he was still active and still listening and still telling his telling his side of the stories and stuff like that so it's just it, it's when you listen back to that episode if people want to listen back to this you are listening to a man who like cares passionately about the things he was doing at that time so yeah 100 percent. and so to your point uh, i always tell people this one of my guiding life philosophies is give people the opportunity to say yes mm-hmm. and so i always say that to people like pitch whoever you want to pitch like literally aim as high as you can possibly aim some like people will surprise you with how often they say yes. I mean, I get rejections all the time. I do media relations for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know what it's like for a pitch to fall on its face. But, dude, you can't have anyone say yes until you ask the goddamn question. Yeah. So just do that. And the fact like I saw when you did that thing with Leonard Malton, dude, Leonard Malton in my life, like I love film criticism. I may love film criticism more than I love actual film. <laughs> and so. Like, I'm not even making that up. You're, I just, you're like, a unique style. brand, my friend. <laughs> Tell me about it. But like, I just finished Roger Ebert's book, mm. uh, which is gorgeous. And I, in some places, punishingly detailed about people that I never know and will never meet in, in places in like Champaign, Illinois, that I will never go. But it's so vivid. It's so evocative. I, I, I just I love like Roger Ebert. I love Leonard Malton. Um, I, I loved when a bunch of the people left the AV club and started to dissolve, mm-hmm. which I found was kind of pretentious in a lot of ways, but mm. <laughs> I just, I, I, I like the writing stuff. Well, I mean, it's, it's married to pitchfork, yeah. which is, is like my least favorite music site ever. But, um, the point is there's just something about the writing and, and the way that you think about the world. And that probably comes out of the fact that I have a master's degree in media studies from Colorado state. And so I wrote my master's thesis on punk rock, um, but you're doing a lot of like film and TV criticism too. Mm-hmm. And so understanding the world through that lens is a, for me, like just pure catnip. Oh yeah. And so I will read movie reviews of movies I have no intention of seeing. And that's just because I, I, I like the way that it's written. I like the way that we're talking about film and I like the way that they're discussing the way film reflects reality and vice versa. That's that's actually how I feel that's a very good way to approach the start of Golden Age Hollywood uh, in terms of getting interested in it. If you're reading about the films right. or, you know, we're friends here on this show with the Secret History of Hollywood podcast and him describing the various amounts of Universal Monster movies back in 20, back in early 2014, 2015, you know, he he described some films that I don't think I'll ever ev- get to, but there is a right. there is a goal to eventually watch every Universal horror movie that is available from that period. But you but you listen to him talk about it, and you're just like, this may not be worth my time. But I'm also a glutton for punishment, even if it's the worst of kinds. What they, like if it's man made monster or something like that, like I'll sit down with it. You know, the I mean, gosh, the 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 amount of information you can get from the description of a movie from that period even if it doesn't exist anymore or if it exists in vast quantities like it's if it's a classic like what like some people don't like wizard of oz but they'll read about it and learn about it they but they'll never watch the movie (laughs) dude wizard of oz is one of my top three films of all time by the way oh that's good Um, and so like up up on my shelf over here and i i can't show it to you oh yeah yeah. wired in but um i have some like inbox action figures from wizard of oz that i bought from this toy store in portland again more hipster <laughs> bullshit 
but um, it was from the uh, the 50 year re-release. So like these are the 1989 action figures. I have the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion. Yikes. Which, I mean, anything else is just gravy at this point. But I have that. I found those. I go, oh, Jesus, I have to have this. These are coming home with me. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to your point, yeah, some people will read about the Wizard of Oz and you can get kind of enough to have like conversational currency mm -hmm. to be able to interact with people about it. I'm the same way with shit like Game of Thrones, which <laughs> e even before that totally like shit the bed in the last season, that was like a cultural juggernaut. And it's something I'm never, ever going to watch because I simply don't give a shit. Like, yeah. it, it's just, it's not for me. It's just, it's not my style of story. Like, I just, I don't care. But I read a ton of reviews about it. I could, like, keep up with it and know enough to talk about it just because I found that fun. Yeah. It, I actually remember at Denver Pop Culture Con, I had to do, um, I, I got handed a panel last minute by Ryan because he was not feeling good, which, I I totally was fine with taking it because there was something he had to put up with the day before at the con that was not cool, but uh, it ended up being the wolves and the crows from Game of Thrones, and these were okay. people who were like side characters in the show who ended up becoming crew members on the show. So they ended up okay. like they loved the show so much that they wanted to develop a, 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 a they wanted to develop careers within the community of the production of that show, and I went up and introduced myself to him and I said like I got to confess like do you guys have like anything you specifically want to talk about? And they sure. were just like, you know, just want to ask us a couple questions and then let's just throw it to the audience. I'm like, that's fair. Panel was wonderful. Everybody was great. I got up afterwards and they asked me, how do you think we did? And I'm like, I think you guys did great. Everybody loved you. I I've got to confess. I was at a loss cause I've never watched this show. And they like, it's all right. <laughs> and they just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> but they were they were super sweet and um but that actually you you talking about wizard of oz leads me into um my like it's a two-part question we talk about golden age hollywood on this show early cinema what is your experience with early cinema so i would say compared to you obviously uh pretty amateurish but um my i grew up in a very pop culture literate household and mm -hmm. so, like, my dad is when, – when I spoke to him before we did this, because my dad's the reason I'm into W.C. Fields, um, my dad introduced me to so much old Hollywood. So W.C. Fields, Marx Brothers. Um, he wasn't a Chaplin guy. And so, like – <laughs> Neither was Fields. <laughs> no, yeah, neither was Fields. And uh, so he uh, – uh, and, I mean, we watched, like, It's a Wonderful Life a lot, and we watched uh, Wizard of Oz. So you, you can name kind of the stuff that you would call chalk, right? Like, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty standard issue uh, kind of taste stuff. But, like, as far as deep dives go, Fields is probably my biggest one. Um, you and I also have a love of old radio. So yeah. I was going to say, you brought up Burns and Allen when we were communicating on getting this planned. Yeah. And I was like, you are the, f I, I don't know if I told you this in the messages, but I'll tell you here right now, just in case you are among the first people in my sphere to acknowledge Burns and Allen and not just George Burns, which, <laughs> which definitely was just like, I gotta, I gotta talk to John here. And well, like, I knew you had an affinity, but I didn't realize you told me about Burns and Allen in a way. I was just like, yeah, like I, I can't believe another person knows this stuff that lives in this state in my sphere right now. Sure. <laughs> so Zach, uh, my first daughter is named grace. Yep. 
and I end every podcast by saying, say goodnight, mm-hmm. Gracie. So yep. that that's my sign-off line at the end of every John yep. of All Trades. Yeah, and it's one thing to know that from a pop culture standpoint, but it's another thing for you to be like acknowledging it like out front. And I'm just like, that's really cool that like he took that inspiration and then just use a pop culture phrase. Right. Like somebody can use the phrase elementary, my dear Watson, (laughs) and have it, you know, like and have it like be like some form of signifier for their life. But you you showing the knowledge for it and and. What's funny enough is Fields has a do, does have a lot of history with Burns and Allen right. in his film career, which is it, it's it's kind of insane the way he actually interacted with Gracie at certain points. But it's uh, even more insane that when you look at Burns and Allen's his film career, it's 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 kind of incredible that George got a second chance. No joke, <laughs> in the seventies <dude>. because <laughs> yeah, he's no not the star. No, no, and he definitely isn't. And what's so funny, the through line here is, I mean, I know your love of Jack Benny. I have (laughs) such affection for Jack Benny, too. The thing that Jack Benny and W.C. Fields do is they are always the butt of the joke, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, the the thing that strikes me, rewatching It's a Gift, and I know we'll get into it, but is what a schlamazzle that W.C. Fields is. Like, he's the guy Mm -hmm. that stuff happens to. And, it like, in in so many ways, actually, I don't want to step on this point, but... The point is, Jack Benny always made everyone around him look so much better. Yeah, And so, to that end, that's one of the reasons I love professional wrestling to the extent that I do. And George <laughs> Burns loved pro wrestling, and W.C. Fields, in one of his movies, and I can't even remember which one, there's like a pro wrestler character in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I... It, oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank It's going it. to kill me, I, but... Yeah. Um, but pro wrestling is all about making your opponent look good. And mm-hmm. so W.C. Fields, when he's playing off of Kathleen Howard or fucking baby Leroy, right? <laughs> he he is taking shit from a baby and yep. like <laughs> and making the baby look good. And he's advancing on a baby with an ice pick. And you're going, that baby kind of has it coming. Like, <laughs> because that baby is the instigator and kind of the aggressor of this situation. And so, it's like, funny. he manages to be yeah. a dick, but still be sympathetic. Which is crazy to me. So when you look at old radio guys like Jack Benny, George Burns, George Burns was always the straight man. I mean, you, you would never, ever say W.C. Fields is a straight man in a movie. No, no. But he is a he will be a foil. But George was George always said flat out, like the way I got into show business, like, you know, when I was when I married Gracie and then he would say, like, this is my job. I say, Gracie, how's your brother? And Gracie goes off for 15 minutes. That's like, that's the, that's the extent of how that goes. And he was jesting because if you listen to his shows, yeah. you do understand he is a funny guy. And there is a, there are appearances in his films where he is actively involved in comedy. Right. But it's Gracie's such an overpowering presence that it's so fucking difficult to stand out. Well, dude, it's not in George the Sunshine Boys. Yeah. George is a sentient reaction shot. Like, that's what he is. Like, he, he's like he's like Jim Halpert in like the 1930s and 40s. Just like you, you, you can Gracie's doing anything right. You know, yep. whether she's stepping up to Silky Thompson, the gangster or, you know, whether she's getting George's portrait painted from inside a closet. You can just picture George looking at her and it's funny. Like, yep. that, like he doesn't have to do anything. His economy of movement and reaction is so good and dialed in to the sensibility of what he's going for that it, it's it's almost like 
I mean, we, we I mentioned Jim Halpert, but there's no there's no one like George Burns for that kind of thing. No, there isn't. Like, I mean, I mean, Bud 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 Abbott was a different kind of straight man. George knew how to do reactions, not too dissimilarly yeah. from how Jack could. And yeah. like one of my favorites is in College Swing when they're doing the test with Gracie. Uh, to see if she'll pass the exam and therefore inherit the school. And they're going through the different questions and whatnot. And he'll look at the paper and then he'll bug his eyes up and then just go like, uh, like it, he'll give his response to it and he'll do the head shake. I love George Burns doing a head shake. Oh, God. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, the and- only thing that's funnier is if he switches it off and starts going off and going do 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 do. One of my favorite things about George Burns is. There's, there's like, a, it's almost like if you're listening to a song, it's like a pre-chorus, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's the verse, there's the pre-chorus, and then there's the chorus. George's pre-chorus is he'll be saying something, and the cigar will come to here, right? <laughs> right about like eight o'clock. Yep. Like in in turn, like and so he says it, and then all of a sudden, boom! Punchline, pull from the cigar, the audience yep. loses it. And so, like, it's George's pre-chorus, and then the punchline is the chorus, and everyone loses their goddamn minds because yep. he is so perfect at timing that with the cigar and the take and the pause. And, like, it's, it's, it's comedy on another level in so many ways. And Gracie was the perfect foil for him. So that was... Yeah. yeah. And Gracie, by the way, for people who may not be fully aware of Gracie Allen, the, the, character, the character in itself was... You could say Dizzy Dame. I argue that Gracie is incredibly smart for Gracie. <laughs> There's, it makes sense to her. Therefore, it's the smartest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Dude, in so many ways, one thing I say is my favorite thing about Gracie, and one of the things, like one of the reasons I love this name so much and why I wanted it for my daughter is you don't see her coming, right? Like mm-hmm. Gracie Allen is a fucking haymaker. Like she is a switchblade in a in in a lipstick tube that you don't see coming. You go, oh, okay, look at this ditz, you know. Like, but she's operating on another level, and she mm-hmm. was such a comedic genius that yeah, she she knew timing like nobody's business. It was dude, ready like, to go. And, and so, like to your point, my other my my second daughter, her name is Sloane. Her middle name is Allen, and so like we couldn't, and and that was. My my father in law, who I've never met, he he died when my wife was like fourteen, but mm-hmm. that was his middle name, and so it's spelled that way A L L E N, and so that's her middle name. We couldn't name the first child Gracie Allen Ekstrom, like that's just that's <laughs> too on the nose, right? Um, but so she has a different middle name, and my second child has Allen as a middle name. But like both of those things, they're not the sole reason that they're named that, but it is a contributing reason. Why they have yeah. those names? Well, and that's a, and that's a beautiful sentiment to carry on. Like for if they ever want to know the origin of their name, you can sit down and tell them this, and you can expose them to the these entertainers of the past. Exactly, which is like it's not too dissimilar from how I, you know, I've already got a whole outline for my nephew and Mao and my eventual niece coming in October, gentlemen and ladies, nice. um, the, uh, to, to expose them to this, but not to shove it down their throats. Like if they're interested in it, cool. If not, you know, I can disown them later. It doesn't matter, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah. let's just put it this way. If they're not into the Marx brothers, there is a problem, but, <laughs> um, well, dude, any, but, anyone who, who isn't into the Marx brothers, you know, like, I mean, if you can't find some joy in some aspect of the Marx Brothers, you don't have a good brain. 
No, you 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 have a, a you have an inability to appreciate Mad Capri at its finest. Like it is, you know, like it, it, some people try to compare them to the Three Stooges, and I'm like, no, 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 you you no, don't that's understand. Imprecise. That's yeah, that's that's the Three Stooges are geniuses within a certain element of screwball and slapstick. Well, not screwball, but slapstick, like flat out physical humor. The Marxists are combining physical, verbal. And everything in between to create something that I would argue doesn't exist until I saw the movie Brain Donors recently. And I was like, holy shit, the Zuckers tried and they almost succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> Movie's a lot of fun. Well, dude, but, if, if you can't watch, and I can't remember which one it is, it's, it's either Room Service or Duck Soup, I think. But when all the fucking knives keep coming out of Harpo's jacket. Oh, Animal Crackers. Animal oh, it's Animal Crackers. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, like he keeps shaking, and, and all the silverware keeps coming out of this oversized coat. <laughs> if you can't find joy in that, because it's, it, you can draw a direct line between that and Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes. Yep. Because it, it goes from being funny to unfunny to painfully unfunny to super funny. Yep. Right? Because you're like, how fucking long is this gag? It's not too different, dissimilar from the, to the sideshow Bob analogy when it's in Cape Fear when he latches himself finally from the car and he's just like, "There's no crime in lying in the middle of the street," and he gets <laughs> trampled by several different things. And Ryan pointed me to this line again when I was going through a Simpsons rewatch: "Not the elephants." <laughs> and it's just the elephants saluting Hannibal crossing the Alps. <laughs> right. It's just it's magical, but. We could be here all day talking about Burns Agreed. and Allen and Benny, but we've got to talk about the great man. <laughs> now, ah. W.C. Fields, how do you describe him without mumbling into the microphone? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, you, you can't. It, as, as soon as you start talking about <laughs> W.C. Fields, you do the voice, at least in your head. Like, if you have any familiarity, and it's sort of this under, under your breath aside Mm-hmm. Where you're going, oh, yeah, I, hmm. yeah, and and you're saying something possibly cutting, possibly something self-deprecating, and I, I mean, I learned that that came from his mother, who when yeah. they were sitting on the stoop in Philadelphia, she would mutter under her breath about everyone walking by. And that's to the where point of even, yeah, to the point of even discussing her, the the actions of his father, who was right. home and coming home constantly drunk, um, <laughs> be like he's been to the bar again, <laughs> and <laughs> oh, what a lovely dress, yeah. yeah, and you know what I think? Like it's funny because you picked a you picked a W. C. Fields movie that when I said in the intro that it was underlooked, I say that in the sense that there are. In cinema, there are two specific types of fields that I've noticed in my time with him. Because I've not seen every single one of his films, but okay. I've seen a lot of the big hitters. Um, and some of the more like incidental ones. Like, Big Broadcast of 1938 is not his movie. But no. he's an instrumental part of it because he flies a gyrocopter off of a golf course. And that will always win my heart. Um, not too dissimilar for what he does in international house filing, filing, flying an even bigger gyrocopter into the middle of a hotel, right. um, which by the way, I rewatched international house last night. The movie's got some contextual problems of the, of the past, obviously, but it's still pretty fucking funny. Well, sure. Um, I, I mean, yeah. if there's, if, if you watch any of fields shorts, like if you've watched the dentist, mm-hmm. um, he, you know, he's, he's digging around through that guy's bushy beard. And, like, that's clearly a stand-in 
for uh, a lady's undercarriage. Yeah. And so, like, there there are troubling things about race. There, There's, you know, some not terribly thinly veiled misogyny that runs yeah. through all of this. So, like, the gender politics of it are going to be problematic. But we're talking about movies that were made in the 1930s and the 1940s. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not expecting these movies to be woke. Like, no. No, and I and I tell people more often than not that when you're watching them and you're examining them, you do have to examine them through a through a lens of that context. So long as you understand it, you're gonna have you're gonna have a fun time. Right. If you can't, then you're probably not gonna enjoy them. Maybe you might want to watch a different kind of movie. That's fine. No big deal. Yeah. Watch what you want to watch is my my philosophy. It's like you know, if you like Game of Thrones, cool. Watch it. I'm not gonna. But you know. Yeah. Please um, don't make me. No, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Don't make me watch it. But W.C. Fields, what's interesting, I noticed this today, especially with this movie. You know, you could point to a lot of problematic material in this, but there is a lot of elements of this that are satire on American family values at the time that Fields would have been growing up. Yeah. So you always have to take that into account because it's a gift is a family com- like a, a family based like sitcom esque comedy. Like it is not um, it's not the same as. Because when I said there's two different types of fields, one is this family man. The other one is some kind of insane person who is given any kind of Groucho Marx-esque job, whether it's a professor or a billionaire or anything. And he just carouses around and does his thing and messes up the place in the process. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah, there's there's the kind of henpecked husband, mm-hmm. which is, you know who he is and it's a gift which is my favorite fields movie and when you told me you hadn't seen it i go oh pay dirt okay great mm-hmm. so here's what we're gonna do this is great and then the other one is some sort of um you're right insane con man right a, a, a guy with ulterior motives like if you've ever seen his short in if i had a million um it's where he get you know he gets a million dollars and what he does is he buys cars and crashes them into other bad drivers, which to me is such like <laughs> what weird wish fulfillment that actually is. Because I mean, who hasn't fantasized about that? It's like, man, that motherfucker, like they drive like shit. I wish I could just teach him a lesson. And he does that. And that movie is wildly entertaining. Like the bank dick. He's insane in that. The man on the flying mm-hmm. trapeze. Um, and then you're right. Then there's the the henpecked husband, which is. For me, it's a gift is the apotheosis of that character. Yeah, it's it's the ultimate summation of that. And it makes sense that it is the summation of it because he was heavily involved in the creation of that stemming from the comic supplement, which is the play that was the basis for this film, which came out of a Zigfield Follies um, entry, um, which he had more than enough issues with Follies to, to be the band. Right. And... What's interesting to me about Fields as it stands at this particular point in his career, because Fields has a couple different phases, primarily because he was a raging alcoholic. Yeah. Um, now, that's not the reason for the nose. Um, his family lineage traced back. You see photos. They had the bigger nose. That's a genetic thing. But but not helped stop. by the alcoholism. It didn't stop. Let me put it this way. It didn't stop Charlie McCarthy at, via Edgar Bergen making fun of that. <laughs> <laughs> and um and and the, and there there is this phase throughout his career where he is going up and down but nobody ever no he never seems to lose like popularity to a detrimental point he it's more or less that like when he's on top of something he just falls in a personal aspect right um 
and he was never not beloved. Like he didn't fall into any particular scandal. The one thing that you can say about W.C. Fields for all the some of the behind the scenes stories we'll talk about with this movie in particular and one of its co-stars would seem very, very uh, like holy crap to somebody today. I guess I would have you keep in mind that this also technically falls in line with the way children would have been treated back in the day in terms of a family aspect. And so it's, it is problematic, but that being said, you uh, try to imagine, try to imagine the situations that surrounded family values back then and notice how much we've grown today. Like that would be the lesson to take away is like, at least my family's not like that, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, and I mean, here's the other thing about it is, This movie is, watching it in 2020, is, oddly enough, a little bit more gentle than I remembered it, than I was expecting, given Mm -hmm. the way our culture is. I mean, this movie is, good God, what, 83 years old now? 87, something like that? Coming Um, up on that, yeah. So, um, it it doesn't have as many problematic uh, elements to it as... I was sort of dreading mm-hmm. um, because, I mean, the the whole cast is white, um, which, you know, <laughs> do, doesn't speak to diversity at all. But no, but the, the fact that, that there's said. that there's not any sort of racial caricatures of, you know, like minority actors having to portray some sort of awful stereotype. It's not International House is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair way of putting it. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, but. Like, to that point, uh, also, ultimately, he is a family man. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he's making these moves misguided as they may be. I don't know. But he he's ultimately doing it for the benefit of his family. He's thinking about his family. He gets off. He trudges off to run this shitty grocery store poorly. Yeah. But, you know, he's he's providing for his family and taking so much shit from his wife. Yeah. Um. That it, and it and I'll tell you, it actually he helps create a genre that we'll talk about by the end of the show that I think has existed in a different, more enlightened form down the line. Because you know, f- domestic comedy or drama in terms of dealing with the family, you know, ranges a gamut. You could yeah. say this is in in many ways some of the dynamics in here are precursors to The Simpsons in certain respects. Or oh, interesting, any, yeah, yeah, because like. You know, I'm not, you know, granted, you know, our hero here in this film is not Homer Simpson, but there are elements and dynamics, especially his son being a rowdy roustabout, where I'm like, ah, that's, a, that's sort of a precursor to Bart Simpson. It's not like these, you know, tropes didn't exist in the past, but they, they evolve in different forms. And for W.C. Fields and this film in particular, it it tends to point towards satire in a way that I think gets undervalued when it comes to Fields, because Fields is a personality first. And the one thing you can notice about this film, regardless of how strong the plot is, ultimately it is in many ways here to deliver pieces of his best vaudeville material and stage material. Um, right. It's designed be- that way. <laughs> be- because structurally, I mean, the film is basically four sitcom episodes. If, yeah. <laughs> if, if you want to break it down structurally, you know, mm-hmm. um, essentially it's his life at home. It's his life at the store. It's the road. Uh, it's the uh, back porch. And then it's mm-hmm. the road movie. Yeah. And so like th- those those are the four kind of setups. And then you're right. They came out of classic fields material. So the picnic 
and the back porch are are sort of classic Fields vaudeville kind of stuff that are just brought to the screen. Yeah, and so and you have also the drugstore itself and the Joyride, which have you know right. the the I think like the drugstore in particular <laughs> is a masterclass at choreography, <laughs> cinematography, and if you want to understand how big Fields was in terms of a physical silent comedian and that could rise up to the challenge of a chaplain, this would be good evidence here. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, you, you and I were texting as we prepped for this episode, and th- there's a stretch where he and Everett, when he walks into the store mm-hmm. and he's changing his hat and his coat, and there are so many just quick gags right away between him putting his, his arm through the hat or whether he's got his foot in the wastebasket to where these things are just happening like boom, 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 like right in a row. And you go, he's barely said a word. And there are so many jokes one after another. And you go, dude, this thing is rich in this. You mm-hmm. could turn the fucking sound off on this movie and still like laugh at it, which yeah. is, is such a tribute to the craft. That's that's a testament to pure cinema, which has been a sticking point with me since I started the Hitchcock series, is when you start learning the tenements of it and learning to recognize it um, in the films you watch on a regular basis, you'll know that the strongest films you watch are the ones where if you can turn the sound off and understand what's going on and respond as they want you to, you've got a strong film on your hands. Yeah. So even if you're looking at films today, it's always good to look at it through those lenses. But that choreography and all of that was honed in vaudeville. And you would think that W.C. Fields being a comedian, well, he always started out as a comedian, right? No, 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 no. No. Much in the tradition of Fred Allen, he was a juggler. (laughs) And uh, that came out of um, a fascination with vaudeville jugglers in order to escape the tyranny of his, frankly, abusive father. Um, And his, um, his father caught him one day practicing juggling with the fruits in the fruit wagon to the point where it is reported um, one of the most valuable assets, by the way, that you will have with W.C. Fields history is the A&E biography special because amongst the people that are interviewed are Ed McMahon and Rod Steiger. And the way it is told through them that um, W.C. Fields' father, James, threw a rake at him when he saw him doing this, to which Fields replied by throwing a crate in his face. Oh, <laughs> and and uh, needless to say, Fields ran away from home at 14 going like, I'm not coming back tell him the best juggler in the world and he kind of adopted the comic tramp juggler the the type that would it's not too dissimilar from the hobo kelly or the red skeleton looks that you see from those clowns but he started working in these beer halls in atlantic city after running around hustling in pool halls and petty thievery and he starts developing these skills as a juggler he becomes a world-renowned juggler in many respects what what eventually at at one point you could probably argue he was the best or at least most recognizable juggler in the entire world yeah and and if you haven't not to say the least yeah Yeah. you can you can see in particularly the old-fashioned way which is Mm -hmm. like the easiest way of finding this you can see his routine with balls with a cane and with cigar boxes in particular Mm -hmm. and the man has just an uncanny coordination with these things. And so you, you watch him with timing and, you know, he, he, he has comedic elements. I think about when he has the cigar boxes lined up at his feet and mm-hmm. you can't see his foot like kicking those boxes up. 
mm-hmm. but he he hones uh, an ability to convey a point or convey a joke with no words at all, simply actions, which I think is what you're getting at. Yeah, and um, I think there's a testament to that. Um, additionally, with his pool table sketch, which oh, he God. develops after. So the juggling happens for a while, but he starts adapt- He starts doing something that Benny did in his vaudeville career. Benny, Benny, I'll use Benny as an, a- an analogy for an instance. Benny started off as a fiddler, um, and eventually, especially post his time in the Navy when he had a, uh, a first line of dialogue in his life, uh, he started developing mon- mon- monologues and doing patter alongside the violin, eventually ditching the violin unless it was used as a hand prop, as like something to hold in your hand like an actor would want to use. Field started doing this with juggling, and if he would, and he would work and intentionally miss stuff to the point where he'd start doing that mumbling and muttering that we love so much, which, as yeah. we said, came out of his mother. So the the persona developed over time, not on, not too dissimilarly from Benny's, and the pool table in particular. He does this the first time it appears really in a cinematic form from sound perspective is Six of a Kind with Burns and Allen and um, Charlie Ruggles, and. It's a trick pool table. It has rounded edges. Yeah, so it's, it's a gimmick. Yeah, and one of the best shots you will ever see as an example of it. It's a very classic one, but he's getting ready to to hit the ball, the cue ball, and it bounces off and knocks him on the fucking head. <laughs> it's an unreal bit, dude. Like, yeah, you, you, it 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 kind of has to be seen to appreciate it. Oh yeah, you have to look at it too, and you have to, and you, and when you realize it's a table constructed specifically for a joke. It, it's it's kind of like a definition for me of the magic of movies or entertainment is like we're going to build this very specific version of a thing you know just to do one joke that lasts 5 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I, I agreed. It's it's uh to me it it's almost like if you ever go see Penn and Teller in Vegas and they're, <sighs> they're shooting guns at each other and you're mm-hmm. going you guys went through how much brain damage for this trick because you're thinking to yourself, there's no way they're going to gimmick a whole pool table, right? No. Or, you, you know, the, Penn and Teller are not going to shoot real guns at each other. And I, I have no idea how Penn and Teller do the gun trick. Like, And I, truthfully, I don't want to know. But when it comes to something like the pool table sketch, it's like there is thousands of dollars and hundreds of man hours behind this for mm-hmm. five seconds of amusement. And there's something beautiful about that level of detail and in a weird way, stupidity. Like, what a fucking yeah. waste. <laughs> but, like, it's for our entertainment, and it's going to live forever in mm-hmm. this really beautiful, insane way. And, like, yeah. thank God we all got to see it. How cool is that? It, it's so cool to the point where I never dissuade or disregard CGI and the artistry that goes behind it. Yeah. But I will always look at something and go, I wonder what happened if they would try to do that practically. I love um, practical effects, too, to your point. Like, I, I don't care if a practical effect looks kind of bad. It It's always a billion times better than shitty CGI. It live, it feels lived in. Even yes. if you know that it's the, even if you're aware of the trick, you still appreciate the trick. That's the like, that's it, why like some magic acts, even if you know the act behind, like Penn and Teller at a lot of times, they'll be like, here's how we did the trick. Yeah. But you still appreciate the trick because you understand that there's a technique and time and like a lot of practice behind it. And, you know, it's funny that, 
Fields develops a lot of these gags, but then also the studios decide like, well, we're going to we're going to give we're going to pump more money into this and make this gag even crazier. Like the porch gag that we'll talk about in a minute is an elaborate construction. And I will tell you that all this experience when he finally gets off of the vaudeville stage and into Broadway stage. Then he moves into the Ziegfeld Follies and then starts finding work in film, starting off, by the way, with D.W. Griffith, like amongst his first, which, you know, I have my problems with D.W. Griffith because of the one movie he made. But Birth very, of a Nation, go on, really? Yeah, exactly. You have a problem yeah. with that? How yeah, odd. Yeah, I, I, John, John, I don't know if you know this, but it's about the Klan. But, um, I've heard that. Yeah, um, but he did make other movies besides the one movie. One of them he made was Sally and the Sawdust, which was an adaptation of the Broadway hit Poppy, which he would later do for sound. But Fields gains a reputation, and in the old Army game, they start doing some of these sketches as well, particularly with the pool table, and then the sound versions would then up the ante on those. The by the time he gets into Paramount Sphere, he also does four key shorts for the Max Senate Company, um, and the dentist sketch that you referred to was described by some people at the time and some biographers to this day as incredibly mean by comparison to the personality we get in It's a Gift. Like, and I've watched it. it. It's, it's pretty it's, dark. Like, it, it, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's he. Like the, the the character is less sympathetic than I would say any other Fields character. Yeah, um, and it it feels to me a little bit mean spirited. Where like that's where it kind of misses me. Whereas Harold Bissonnet, which mm-hmm. I mean, you talked about satire of you know American capitalism, the the misplaced affectation of his wife wanting to be known as Bissonnet, not Bissonnet. <laughs> yeah, uh, which no one would ever pronounce it that way with the way it's no. spelled. Um, it's it's the it's the desire to be bigger than you are right like that, that exactly and like the conversation she has with mrs dunk is really funny to me because they're both putting on airs in their own way yeah and so like it's it's this um it's this kind of commentary on how silly wealth humping and jock sniffing looks <laughs> in, in terms of you know like oh well look at how important we are oh and your uncle bean died well i guess we'll be next to the wealthy business you're going i need you to write a book on uh, on the uh devaluation of capitalism called jock sniffing <laughs> uh it's it's coming uh, not <laughs> no for need some for time your, no but, no need for your headshot on the book's cover i just <laughs> uh, no yeah jock sniffing by anonymous um but to your point it's it's one of those things where you uh you don't you you don't empathize with him as the dentist. But mm-hmm. no matter like how much of a dick he is or how incompetent he is in it's a gift or the bank dick or the man on the flying trapeze or like whatever. It uh the one where he's an inventor and I, it's escaping me now but he, he creates a funnel that goes over his doorknob so he can stick the key in the lock without scratching around on the door. Mm-hmm. Um, n- no matter how he is, you kind of always root for him. For me, the problem in The Dentist, which you're referring to, is that I'm not really rooting for this character. I just think he's kind of mean and shitty. Yeah, and there's and there's a part of me that appreciates The Dentist because I do I do find myself attracted to those stories that feature less than desirable characters. But when you're talking about fields 
it's interesting to watch that and then put it side by side with even as something as crazy as International House because in International House he's not a he's not like the greatest person in the world but he's also not the worst like you know frankly it's set up that Bella Lugosi's worse than him in that movie <laughs> right. which you know like which is still crazy to me that he's in that movie but the anyway the point being that you know they learned how to hone that character in for mass consumption because it's one thing to see it on a vaudeville stage. Each audience is different in each town, even on Broadway, every audience is going to be different. Sometimes you can learn to pull back on things or expand once it's on film, it's forever. And so you have to learn with each film, how to adapt that it's a gift, which we're going to start talking about right now is specifically designed to add a counterpart to the international house field or the six of a kind field. Yeah. It's a counterpoint and it, it allows him to create those two different personas. But there's another hero in the uh, formation of it's a gift and it's Norman McLeod, uh, Norman Z McLeod. Now we would be familiar with him for a couple of different films, not the least of which would be topper uh, and uh, two of the world's greatest uh, comedies ever assembled, Monkey Business and Horse Feathers, starring <laughs> four brothers who uh, made five beautiful movies and then became three brothers. And um, th- it ranges up and down like a roller coaster, but they're still all fun to watch. Um, <laughs> I, I don't I don't particularly want to rewatch Go West anytime soon, but that's just for me. But, sure. you know, uh, bi- anyway, Norman MacLeod, this is a guy who is a very interesting director that when we get into the Marx brothers, I think his comedic abilities are like increased to this cranked up level in a certain respects. Um, but this would be post his Marx period, but he is a army service, army air service member who served in France during world war one as a fighter pilot <laughs> studied at the university of Washington, broke into the industry via animation, then becomes a gag man for 50 silent comedies he then becomes the assistant director on Wings, which is the first film to win an Academy Award for Best Picture, directed by uh, previous episode's discussion point, William Wellman. Uh, and he starts getting a chance at features with a silent Western called Taking a Chance. He moves into comedies. One of his earliest breakouts is Topper with Cary Grant, an early Cary Grant. Um, and McLeod, I think understands how to stage gags and it's you could watch this and monkey business and understands that he's not afraid of a wide shot nor is he afraid of making you aware that you are watching something that is specifically designed to make you laugh um there are there are shots in it's a gift that are clearly a set and you could argue that wes anderson looks at not necessarily this film but construction like this film for the deliberate sets that he builds because the shot of the porch and the back and the way it is constructed and framed yeah. reminds me of the specific choreography and design of some shots in Wes Anderson movies. Not the whole thing, but like some of his aesthetic things. Dude, um, that, that that is super insightful because the back porch is interesting because it's three houses. Uh, like mm-hmm. for anyone who hasn't seen it, there it's it's a three level kind of. I, I don't know what you call it. It's I mean it's it's like a house. It's clearly an East Coast kind of deal, because mm-hmm. they they don't have houses like that out here. But there's one family on the bottom level. Uh, Fields' family lives on the middle level, and then there's Mrs. Dunk upstairs. Seems to me you're it's... getting pr- pr- pretty familiar with Mrs. Dunk upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you look at it, and it's very almost ornamental. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole back porch scene 
you know, with the coconut rolling down the stairs or the vegetable man or Carl LaFong or whoever, it's, it's, it's staged in a way to where, yeah, you notice elements about this setup that I hadn't really thought about in a Wes Anderson kind of way. But to your point, it reminds me of the way that you look at the Grand Budapest Hotel mm-hmm. or the, the way the luggage is in the Darjeeling Limited. You know, like it's it's very it serves its purpose in a very particular way and enhances the story like set design actually is important. And I think that's to me something I'm not necessarily looking for in 1934 cinema. No, and you don't even and in when you watch Fields' films, there's a lot of times when you first watch it, you're watching Fields himself. Of course. Then you start noticing the props in his hand or the things in his vicinity. Um and you know, as we jump into the plot of the film, we're going to be talking about the first big one, which is the drugstore. But um, we got to talk about one more guy before we do this plot. Baby Leroy. Baby Leroy. Now, Baby Leroy is kind of a this is a thing that doesn't really happen anymore. There were popular <laughs> child actors who were of baby age at this point. Baby Leroy, at the time of him being signed onto a contract with Paramount, was 16 months old, making him the youngest child actor at the studio in studio history at that time there are many accounts that in the three films that they did together which are tilly and gus the old-fashioned way and it's a gift that look that fields hated this child <laughs> he didn't hate this child <laughs> no he didn't in fact fields was aware that Leroy was a good chunk of his popularity like mm-hmm. he knew where the money was but there are stories that indicate it's not unfair to assume that Fields would still show him who's boss on set because at the time that Baby Leroy was that young, they were feeding him Pablum on the set of one of these films. And Baby Pablum is, you know, it helps the kid grow. And he was lacing this with gin. <laughs> right. Now, now you hear that and you think child abuse. At the time, they were people like, you know, like giving him a nip of the bottle to the child to help him go to sleep or to calm down. In the case of this particular situation, it involved them trying to get a shot off, and I believe it was Tilly and Gus, and he was just not cooperating, and so Field started slowly adding it to the pablum. Um, and the uh, he the, Norman McLeod had this to say about this. Fields had a phobia about the baby. He not only hated infants in general, but he believed that baby Leroy was stealing scenes from him, and he used to swear at the baby in front, so much in front of the camera that I had to cut off ends of the scene in which they appeared. Now, again, as we said, he did not hate children, but that's an indicator that he was getting frustrated with this. So his solution is the gin. And Leo Rostin summed this up um, at a... 1939 testimonial dinner. The only thing that I can say about w- Mr. W.C. Fields, who I have admired since the day he advanced upon baby Leroy with a nice pick, is that any man who hates dogs and babies can't be all bad. <laughs> right. Everybody's in on the joke. And by the way, as far as that gin thing, Fields himself said, it, as he recalled it, I quietly removed the nipple from baby Leroy's bottle, dropped it in a couple of noggins of gin, and returned it to the baby Leroy. After sucking on the pacifier for a few minutes, he staggered through the scene like a Barrymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, WC. <laughs> Dude, I, and like my honest appraisal, given what I know about Fields and like how awful he felt about Cecil B. DeMille's grandchild drowning in his backyard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
the ways in which he would write to aspiring jugglers who wrote to him. Yeah. Um, a lot of that shit was for the press. Yeah, like studio it, he, press, he, yeah. He, he was putting on a persona for that, and I think mm-hmm. he was playing it up. Now, granted, some of this, I think you could say, alcoholism, but, you know, <laughs> like, th- that, that'll make you do some fucked up things. But the point is, I think he understood which side his bread was buttered on, so he can play mm-hmm. up this feud with an infant for the benefit, for everyone's benefit. Like, it, yeah. I mean, it's straight up carnival barking or pro wrestling heel bullshit where, like, you know where to turn the screws on the narrative mm-hmm. to, to pump it up a little bit more. Yeah. And Benny did this with his feud with Alan, his cheapskateness, um, right. his vanity. Uh, Burns did that even with an element of him wanting to be the world's greatest singer, Sugar Throat Burns. You know, the, each of these guys, especially in the comedy realm, had a very specific place they were stuck in to the point where like somebody like Bob Hope at a certain point, he tried to break out of it with uh, the seven little foys and it didn't, it didn't work the way he wanted it to, but I love that movie. And the, but the thing is, is that they had a persona that fit them. And especially if the filmmakers were treating them correctly, unlike Jack Benny, they didn't treat him well in film, but you know, you'd get success off this fields knew this. So you're right. He does know where his bread is buttered. He's going to play into that. In fact, International House has the best tidbit of all time, which is that he he and the director of that film, Sutherland, created a fake earthquake video (laughs) as intended for newsreel footage that helped bolster the sales of tickets for International House, which is like, that's a trick that doesn't work today. I think the last time somebody tried found footage as a promotional tool that was effective was probably either Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity. Right. <laughs> and it's not the same thing. <laughs> they just pretended to have a ghost story. These guys tried to fake an earthquake <laughs> in the 30s. Well, I mean, Zach, it's, it's no different than, I mean, how long ago was it now? It was probably between 10 and 15 years ago where flash mobs were a thing. Oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you're, you're trying to manufacture uh, an event and mm-hmm. and doing it in, in you're trying to gin up publicity in creative ways. That's what PR is. Yeah. And so whether you're faking an earthquake or whether you know you're you're having a feud with an infant, who by the way, what how fucking weird was Hollywood at that point? Where it's <laughs> 1934 and second billing is this child that's like two years old, like you're, it's like W.C. Fields for and anything. Baby Leroy, <laughs> and you yeah. go the fuck. Like the baby has second billing, like by name. Yeah, it's um. There's a film of the era that is not good, but I do recommend people watch it just to see an example of what this is about. What an odd recommendation, by the way. It's I, not I, good, but I recommend people watch it. I I do that all the time because I do think that sometimes it gives you an insight into the perspective. And this one in particular is Boy Meets Girl. It's with Jimmy Cagney and Pat O'Brien, and they're playing screenwriters who uh, come across the opportunity to promote a young child star that has just been born in their studio. Uh, It's a big random farce that's trying to be a Marx Brothers movie and it doesn't work. But that's how big it was when people were doing this at the studio level to the point where even Warner Brothers was making fun of it. Warner Brothers, by the way, a studio whose bread and butter was started off of Rin Tin Tin, amongst other things. (laughs) So it's it's not like they had any room to make fun of this. But Right. But yeah, and... I think that it's a gift, though, when it comes to the Baby Leroy thing, you know, it seems like a distraction or kind of a weird gimmick to us today, but 
you know, it, 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 I think it does work given the the personality that we've just been talking about. And in in our film today, he's playing the role of Harold Harold Bissonnette, um, or Bissonnet. as his wife says, Bissonnet. Uh And he is such a I would I would call him a henpecked henpecked sad sap if I was going to use the terminology of the era. In reality, I look at him in some ways as like a precursor to the amount of like. It's not that he's pathetic. It's just that he, th- this character in particular, has a hard time speaking up. And I love that this is, this is the counteractive part of W.C. Field's persona, where it is the mumbling man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like it's. It sometimes it reminds me of um, uh, w- William H. Macy in Fargo, where he's trying to speak his mind and nobody will let him. <laughs> like especially his father-in-law, <laughs> dude Wade Gustafson in that movie owns him like clearly jerry is a beta male in fargo William H. i'm Macy's- not talking about your damn word <laughs> Jeez, what are you thinking <laughs> and no like and and wade is such an amazing character in that he's like you know william h macy goes this could work out real good for me and gene and scotty and wade looks at him and goes gene and scotty never have to worry and you go, oh you motherfucker like, yeah, that, that is and such he, a shitty line. But like, OK, yeah. so you brought up William H. Macy, who I thought of when I was watching this is Harold Bissonette reminds me of a lot of Larry David's comedy Ooh, in that he is usually technically correct, but also like not great at expressing it and also kind of a jerk, which makes him spiritually wrong. Yeah. So, it's, it's, like, you, you're watching it and you're going, yeah, you're right, but Jesus Christ, I kind of don't want to agree with you. Yeah, you, you actually, that is a, that is a f- wonderful point. And even, not, and like, that Larry David comedy extends not just to Curb, but also Seinfeld, like, early yeah. elements of Seinfeld. And, yeah, that is a wonderful asset to attach to this because it doesn't matter if you want him to succeed in getting this orange field or not. Yeah. You have already you were already aware based on the way the com- comedy is set up that he's doomed for failure anyway and you see him dragging his family no matter how annoying they might feel as constructed again like there's an element of this where you look at his wife and go like you know his wife's right like <laughs> <laughs> she's not wrong but she's also annoying. Yeah, like, she she th- there nobody's innocent of being annoying in this movie. <laughs> no one's hands are clean in this movie. Like <laughs> Like no one, like literally, it, it in a lot of ways, it's it it is very much a precursor to Seinfeld or Curb, mm-hmm. in that you know everyone's kind of got blood on their hands in terms of the way that they handle themselves, but they're all kind of stuck together. They're all kind of there, and you can yeah. tell there's affection at the core of it. But everyone is doing their best with imperfect information in an imperfect world. Yeah, it's exactly right, and. They are in, in many ways. That's it, that's when I said earlier with the satire thing of American Family at the, as it existed at this point. I should correct myself. It's a it's a one more example of the way you satirize family life anytime because no matter how small details change, the basic dynamic ends up being the same. A family is a collabor- collaboration of two different people bearing their children and having an inconsistent relationship throughout life in certain respects. 
there's love, obviously, but let's 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 break it down to the obvious science. And <laughs> um, but you know, I would say that like from the moment one in this film where we see a kid rolling around in the house with roller skates, we already know we're dealing with an unruly, like kind of mess of a family. Right. And it's it's doubled down. Like the basic plot that kicks this off is is that. Harold's Uncle Bean uh, is at death's door, Uncle Bean. <laughs> I, and the way the kid shouts Uncle Bean will, oh. will always make me laugh. Pap, Uncle Bean? <laughs> Pop, who do you think's dying? Uncle Bean's dying. <laughs> hey, da- Pop, if Uncle Bean dies, do we go to California? <laughs> yeah, I like the way that kid says Uncle Bean. Um, yeah, he hits it so hard, and it's such a hard consonant. Tommy Bupp, I don't have information on him, but goddamn, what a wonderful child actor who knows his timing, <laughs> dude. And and yeah, that that kid, like he is right there, and he is holding his own against Fields in every single scene that they're in together. Like mm-hmm. that that kid, you're you're right. Um, he's a force in this movie. He's kind of underrated. Yeah, he reminded me of an actual child equivalent of uh uh Walter Tetley, the uh the actual adult like late teenager early adult actor who had that childlike voice who ended up playing um uh Sherman in Mr. Peabody and Sherman later <sighs> in his life. But like radio-wise you'd probably remember him as Leroy in Great Gildersleeve or as Julius the Grocery Boy in Phil Harris Alice Faye show. So like, he kind of gave me those vibes of just like this rapscallion but not as smart as Tetley. Oh, and, and clearly I I think of those examples that you gave like really right off the top of my head. Like I and I'm making that up. I have no idea who those people were that you mentioned. But I, I, I will definitely send you some shows because you, you'll you might see what I'm talking about with that. But the um he has his we 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 don't just have the son Norman. We also have his wife Amelia, played by Kathleen Howard, and Mildred the daughter, played by Jean Roverall. Rov- Rov- and I will tell you that the daughter element of this film, if there's any weak element in this movie, it is how the daughter's love plot is shoved in. And the only reason it's acceptable is because it does provide the gateway to the orange grove by the end. Right. It's it, not it, a crime, but <laughs> it, it, it feels fairly stapled on. Yeah. At, at this point, like it's, it's, it's the most underdeveloped, like, okay, so she's in love with this guy, John Durston, John mm-hmm. Durston sells, uh, his firm sells the orange grove, which turns out to be bullshit to Harold. Yeah. And and so yeah, she's just kind of there and and we're supposed to just kind of I guess opt in to believing that she's very much in love with him even though there's not a ton of evidence to it. They don't devote much real estate at all to it. No, it's it's but it's an hour and 8 minutes. So for the purposes of <laughs> The movie of that is 70 ex- uh, yeah, 68 minutes, you're right. Yeah, so there's like it's it's almost just like okay, I forgive it because I'm aware of our runtime here. But sure. like if you're wanting an actual developed love plot that means nothing, you can watch a Marx Brothers movie from the MGM era and you will be just fine. But in the in the right. case of this, you know, it's it's frankly the love plot in international house is stronger by comparison. And that's the same runtime because they actually split up how much time everybody's on screen. But Harold's Harold doesn't need to be bothered. doesn't need to be bothered with any of these things in his life. Cause this is at this moment, he's trying to shave and we get this wonderful shaving scene, which is 
Remember when we were talking about silent comedy, this is literally the first example of turn the sound off. It doesn't fucking matter because you are getting a silent film performance at its finest. Right. Um, Agreed. You'll see Mildred gargling, and that's like one of the only sound cues mm -hmm. in the entire. And so, yeah, of of the four like nuclear family members, Mildred is the least developed. And that's just something you kind of have to accept. Um, But you're right. In, In the bathroom scene. Mildred comes in and Fields is trying to shave the whole time and she's monopolizing the mirror. She's brushing her hair as, as you know, and it gets in Fields' mouth and he's trying to attach a mirror to the ceiling. There's <laughs> like, it, it, you're right. It's, it's largely wordless and probably for five minutes, I don't think there's really any dialogue. There's only the gargle and him going or at one point because his his daughter bumps the back of her head into his mouth and he gags because he's trying to get her hair out of his mouth (laughs) yeah right that yeah that's that's the only and it's all just like diegetic sound yeah is that is sort of uh enhancing the comedy because fields getting a hair out of his throat will make noises that i like if i i've tried i cannot replicate like this no. high pitched sort of like oh I like the part where he's trying to trying trying to shave at first with what appears to be either a like a can of shaving cream or like a, or some kind of can in the house and then finally he finds the mirror right. <laughs> like it, it takes him a minute to find this mirror and when he does his his solution is hanging up on this hook now it won't affect me whatsoever <laughs> and the beauty of that mirror is because it's weighted and shifting uh, shifting around and rotating he's just circling trying to <laughs> shave while he's circling and his wife comes in at the most inopportune moment in this because again as we mentioned before norman is going like hey guess what uncle bane's dying right and pop who do you think's dying (laughs) like which is i don't know you when i'm about to kick you down the door (laughs) in in terms of the architecture of a question like hey pop who do you think's dying it's like (laughs) that's the kind of shit that my my kids are four and six at this point Mm -hmm. that's the kind of shit they ask me like this unanswerable fucking nonsense construction (laughs) to where you go what how the fuck am i supposed what are you even talking about like they expect me to be a fortune teller (laughs) do you expect me to know everything (laughs) (laughs) like they just they, they sniper in with this rifle shot of bullshit and you go what like what are we? Dad, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> and so it's like, can I phone a friend? Like, mm-hmm. I need to ask. I need to call one of your friends to figure out like just proper context for this question. But like, yeah. no, you're right. His wife walks in as he's laying on his back on a chair. He's got the mirror tilted, like hanging from the ceiling, and he's trying to shave that way. Yeah, and she goes, "What kind of tomfoolery are you up to now?" And she. <laughs> He tries to explain it to her that the daughter is using the mirror, but before he can explain it, daughter she's Mildred, gone. she's already gone. She's, she's gone. gone, and he's just like, oh, oh she's not here yeah, well, anymore. Like, I lo- and I love it because he's like, he goes, finally, I have a real answer for my wife, and he goes, because she, and he turns around and he goes, she, uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, yeah, like, and, and she's like, uh, of all the driveling idiots. Yeah, she is like she is weighing into him. It is it is crazy. Like she is and, clearly over his bullshit at all times. Yeah, and, and like he's given no quarter whatsoever. Like no, he never he gets the benefit be- of the doubt. And he has become passive at this point. It's like it's 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 it's, it's he's become constantly numb to this. He like, has no this fight. Is, no, he's not. He's 
to quote Rocky and Creed, he's just like, I just can't fight no more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he's done. <laughs> and he is getting ready to go at the dinner table. And there's a there's a scene the between him table. and the son. Yeah, the breakfast table. Sorry, yeah, the breakfast table. And there's a scene between him and the son, which his son, by the way, is reaching across the table at shit. <laughs> no, and dude, I'm, hold on, hold on. Before you get wait, there. Yeah. So he trips on his son's roller skate. Yes. And he flips over. And so he's down on the floor and she's like, get up off the floor. And so like, just so mean, like clearly he's, he's fallen badly. Um, and that like, this is one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. So he comes over to the table and his son, who's just a, he's shitty. Like the son is, he's real shitty. Like in the yeah. way that little kids are like where you can't really blame him, but you go, that's a shitty little kid. He's unaware of how annoying he's being and how right. terrible he is. <laughs> and so, yeah, he's pure unchecked it at this point. And he goes, do it again, pop. Ha ha ha. And Harold goes, shut up. <laughs> and then uh, his wife, Amelia goes, did you hurt yourself, dear? And he goes, shut up. Uh, no, dear. I didn't. Thank you. <laughs> like he's getting ready to tell her to shut up, too. <laughs> but he catches himself. He's just about to lose it before he's like, no, 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 no sleeping outside on the on the grass tonight. No, right, yeah, but but he's he's like, shut, uh, no, dear, I didn't. No, um, he that that kills yeah. me every time. Like when he sits down, he's about to to say something shitty to her, and he catches himself, and he goes, oh right, yeah. I I am he, I'm not the head of this household. And he does that a couple of times. Like he he does he does this more than once throughout the film, where he is. He is aware of the power structure here. He is aware that he has lost all privilege to speak, which is which is <laughs> which is a testament to Fields like understanding a certain element of not only his own upbringing, but the way this the, the way this comically constructed will work to his benefit, not just for his character, but for the scene at large. He right. knows he's giving her, the, you know, like the terminology that I've heard used in constant like interviews with people of the era when it comes to a character like Amelia is battle axe. And I think that's, mm. I think that's like, you know, like harsh, but it, but it is like one of those things like she is in that same vein of like a Verna Felton where she will make her voice heard. It's just as funny as fields, but for different purposes, like she is bringing something to the table that if fields doesn't have it, he has no character. So similar as you talked about with Benny, and Fields having these being the butt of the joke, he's surrounding himself with people who clearly enhance his ability to perform. And I mean, even Mildred provides this to some extent because she she provides this. We'll get to it in a second, but she provides a line that then sets up a wonderful bit about who wears the pants in the house. I, I um, And I know what you're hinting at, but yeah. I, I want to take this point. Before we get too far along, I, I just I have to say Kathleen Howard is mm-hmm. one of my absolute favorite fields foils because here's the thing about Kathleen Howard. She is fearless in the way that she is assertive in this role. And so, like, here's the thing. Kathleen Howard also has some physicality about her. Right. She's mm-hmm. about equal in stature to W.C. Fields. Yeah. And so. She has an unbelievably powerful voice and is fearless in her bravado. Like she's a very bold, very loud character. And it in a way that you didn't see from women in Hollywood a lot mm-hmm. at the time, 
where yeah. you could watch her and go, my God, she is a commanding presence in the same way that Meryl Streep kind of, when she walks on screen in Devil Wears Prada, you know mm-hmm. she is the boss of whatever's happening. Yeah. And so Kathleen Howard walks on screen and you go, that woman is in charge. Yeah, and we're talking about an actress who it, it does it's you know you could you could say that about other actors like maybe a Catherine Hepburn where it's just like they're they're commanding the screen the moment you see them and hear them. But she is doing it in a way that feels realistic and not derived out of a personality. She is inhabiting a character. Right. Not too dissimilarly from how Margaret Dumont inherits inherits the veil of the ignorant but fawning dowager to groucho Marx. you know right. there are these these there's always myths that these guys like inhabit their characters to the point of actually being the characters no they're trained professionals in theater vaudeville anything that's coming before they step on the screen and howard is one of those people she understands especially through her experience in theater and running all the way up into 1950 that you've got a consummate professional who understands this is exactly how I need to portray this character. And if she's going up against fields, because this is not her only movie with fields. No. And yeah. And she totally gets it. She knows exactly what she needs to do to go toe to toe with him. And I wouldn't be surprised if fields, especially since he constructed a lot of these scenarios and gags was very instrumental in encouraging her to just like, give me, give it all. Give me all you got. Yeah, give, <laughs> give it both barrels. Um, it reminds me of something. So you remember when the Fairley brothers made the remake of the Three Stooges, right? Um, yes. <laughs> okay. So we're not going to talk about that. But no. <laughs> what, what we're going to talk about is I read an interview with them and they said, when you're a kid and you get introduced to the Three Stooges, the mm-hmm. first person your eye goes toward is Curly, right? Because Curly is the silliest. Curly's a force of nature. Curly is just unhinged. As you get older, you tend to watch Moe. Because Mo, like in the words of Homer Simpson, Mo's their leader. And <laughs> so, <laughs> you, I do love that line. <laughs> that's such a great line. And so, but like, you know, you get older, you go, oh, okay, Mo is kind of in charge. That's who I'm watching. When you are even older than that, your eye goes to Larry. Mm-hmm. Because Larry is quietly doing some of the best work of the three. Mm-hmm. And like Larry is very subtle in what he does. And so as I've gotten older, I've watched It's a Gift roughly a billion times in my life. The older I get, the more I watch Kathleen Howard. And yeah. Kathleen Howard is quietly like the the sort of anchor of this movie in a lot of ways. Where yeah. you watch her and she is in a position of strength where if she brings less than her full self where she is standing like as tall as she possibly can in every single scene and speaking at the top of her register at almost all times that like his wilting kind of henpecked every man character. Yeah. It doesn't work if there's a weaker counterpoint. And so to me, she is bringing something to this movie that if it were anyone less than that is doing the film and the narrative a disservice. Yeah, and it's and and you know like you, you could try to make allusions to the similarities in the way Fields deals with different female co-leads in his career like 
if you were bring, if you were to bring up Mae West, you're talking about a completely different personality. Which again, Mae West is also somebody who brings all of the force she needs to, but for very different purposes. And yeah, he, the, like that—that's to a different end, like and yeah. a different style of comedy. Yeah, and Howard is bringing forth the the dominant, you know, I am in charge personality, which honestly is when I see these films do this of this era. You know, usually, like, the intent of the comedy at the time is to sympathize with the belittled husband, but I look at it as even ground at this point, where it's just like, I've got two flawed people in the room right here. Let's watch them duke it out in their own respective ways. Because Fields isn't, like, unable to return back a jab, but it's very different and very subtle. Um, Like, he he does it literally at the breakfast table. Like... Totally. And and Kathleen Howard is... All that strength and all that bluster is masking yeah. some deep insecurity that mm-hmm. comes out in her conversation with Mrs. Dunk just a few minutes later. Because clearly oh, she yeah. recognizes that they are lower class, lower status. He basically runs a corner grocery store. They don't have a ton of money. They don't have a car. She said, I don't have a stitch to my back. I have no maid. Probably never shall. And so she is like beating the shit out of him. Like in in the same way that an army drill sergeant would, because she's trying to elevate her and him at the same time, and she does this all while trying to not make it obvious. Because that scene with <laughs> Mrs. Dunk, she also you know is fully aware that like I'm going to have these means of improving my family at the sacrifice of the death of Uncle Bean, but of course I should never downplay the tragedy of losing a family member. Oh, of course. <laughs> no, not at all. But but still, very smart to plan for the future. Ah, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Dunk, who, by the way, in the, in the movie is the mother of baby Leroy as he uh-huh. plays into this. But I will talk about this breakfast table because there is a moment in here that points to Fields' childhood specifically, I would, I would argue, is um, they're having breakfast and at one point little Norman finally fucking like pushes him to the point where <laughs> he go, he goes, uh, you know, I, gee, don't you love me? Poppy's like, yeah, let me show you how much I love you. <laughs> no, no, no. He goes, uh, there, there was, like, um, he goes, what's the matter, pop? Don't you love me anymore? And he like brings his arm yeah. back. Like he's going to hit him. Yeah. He's going to hit him. And, <laughs> and he go, and she, Howard recognizes that he's about to smack this kid. And he goes, like, he can't tell me that I don't love him. Yeah, she's like, don't you strike that child. He goes, well, he's not going to tell me I don't love him. You know, that's That to me is ch- Fields channeling his father. Like, yeah. that is a total Fields channeling his father. And, and it's the obvious note to make. But I think for an audience that's listening to this in particular, it's good to know that, like, that's the point of the comedy. You know, like, obviously, it's not funny to watch a kid being hit today by any stretch. Like it's, well, it, and he doesn't actually it, hit him either. You know, he doesn't. That's the important part of it. Right. It's all it's all to play into that child-hating persona that we talked about that's developed over time. But it is, like, one of those nice little insights. Fields is unafraid in the same way to also show who he was as a person, no matter if he was going to talk about the details up front to you. Um, and... I think it's one of the few he's one of the few comedians that did do this uh, because others tried to shelter their past. Um, I mean, you know, Groucho Marx, you know, we never really got to know Julius that much. Um, Jack Benny, we got to know Benjamin Kubelski, but on and off over the years. 
George Burns, it took almost 80 fucking years for us to learn any insight into him, and we're still trying to dig up shit. So, you know, like, there's there's an element of fields of being among the most honest show business who didn't try to hide his, his, uh, his dirty past or his, you know, less-than-ideal upbringing. And, you know, this this kind of character that he plays... It's exemplified further of how he's channeling into the way his father felt for comedic purposes because the discussion obviously leads to if Uncle Bean dies, we get a bunch of money, we get this California orange grove. But obviously, Norman is spilling the beans because he doesn't know how to shut his fucking mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the, you know, Amelia is just going like, you know, like you're not going to throw money away on another useless venture. The thing is, is that as Fields is presented as this henpecked, you know, berated husband, the fact is, is that he kind of puts him, he doesn't kind of, he does put himself in this position because she lists several different get rich quick schemes that he's been involved in. Right. <laughs> and like, what was it? The one is, uh, like, it was uh, like coiled collars. Like, or, or, like it was, it, yeah, it was. I, I don't remember. It was a bunch of shit that like, you like, that someone would try and sell you in the 1920s mm-hmm. that, that like almost it. I, again, we keep bringing up the Simpsons, but like it's when Lisa Simpson sees the Yahoo serious film festival. It's like, <laughs> I know all those words, but that sign makes no sense. <laughs> and so like Amelia is listing all these like schemes that Harold has. And I'm listening to it. I go, what the fuck is she even talking about? Like, I recognize all those words. But, but like, they don't what, work together. <laughs> yeah, what she's saying, I can't relate to on any kind of level. So you're right. I mean, he's always kind of got schemes. And, like, here's the other thing. Yeah, he's clearly not the head of that household, which we can get to the to the Mildred thing here in a second. Mm-hmm. But he's also, like, he also kind of doesn't give a shit to where he buys the fucking Orange Grove anyway. Yeah. That's, and so, like, and just kind of plows ahead with what he's going to do irrespective of his wife's objections. Yeah, he's... And he does this... I love the way that this shot... It's, again, it's another silent film thing, but unfortunately, you do need the sound in order to do it. Not unfortunately, I guess. It's it's using the power of Howard's voice with his physical ability of him slinking out of the room. It's something (laughs) poetic about it. And, you know, I find it funny that, you know, like... In that biography special that I consumed along with the other information in prepping here, you know, Rod Steiger says in this, you know, Fields looked at Chaplin and said, he's a goddamn ballet dancer. Right. Well, WC, well, you're no, you're not necessarily not wearing a leotard yourself here because you've got the grace of a dancer, but for different effect and purpose. You are using careful choreography, not just with the feet, but how to move and turn your body to how to engage with that material and let the audience know exactly what you're communicating. That only works through silent film. It doesn't work with verbal humor. Now, when you do get into the verbal humor, which does happen here as he goes into the kitchen and Mildred goes like, you're ruining all my, you're going to ruin my life by moving me to California and away from my love that nobody in the movie cares about because he's only on screen for two minutes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And he, he goes like, oh, hang on here, please. (laughs) I am the master of this house. Yes, dear. (laughs) No, but what, yeah, what's so funny is he goes that I, and then look turns around to make sure his wife didn't hear him raise his voice like that. Yep. And then says quietly to Mildred, 
am the master of this household. <laughs> and as soon as he said that, Kathleen Howard comes in so loud, Harold! <laughs> and like he does that thing with his hat, like like where he, he like grabs yeah. it. Yeah, it kind of tips it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and, and kind of wiggles it. And he's like, yes, dear. <laughs> and like clear. And it's like, oh, so yeah, you, you clearly you, are the master of this household. Masters definitely get that scared when their wives call them. Yeah, exactly. And you get with that hat full. I'm glad you mentioned that, because if you were to rewind this, like play it, then rewind it again. If you were to mark the time when she says Harold and how quick he is. To respond yeah. with that, you know, it's, you know, obviously in the soundtrack, it's a voice, it's, it's um, ADR, but when you have on set, somebody is cueing it, whether it's Howard herself or, you know, somebody on set, whatever, giving the cue, he still knows the timing. And then that's kind of like this beauty of cinema as you lay that in at that exact point. I wouldn't be surprised if this was an equivalent of an onset ADR where you have her screaming that as loud as she can so that you can get the timing right because the way he flips and turns his head to yeah. address that situation is magnificent um and this and we i guess we're basically at this point now we're going to this drugstore that is a fucking insane ball of a ride here because first of all he, he i love it when any comic does this fields included he tries to open a door, gets distracted by something. Somebody already opens the door for him, and he spends another good, I want to say 30 seconds before he realizes that door's already open. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and of course, he gets distracted by a child. Yeah. <laughs> who, who just comes up to him with, like, this inanity. I've got a piece of chalk. Do you want to play hopscotch? And, and you go, what the fuck? Like, what? 1934 was strange. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's, no, it's, Everett comes up behind him, unlocks the other door, and so he, he's fumbling with the door that he's trying to unlock, and then realizes yeah. that that door is open. Yeah, you're right. That's he, a great gag. He is. He is. It's a subtle moment to make you realize he is so stretched mentally as a character yeah. that between his family, his aspirations for an orange grove, and this bullshit operation that he has <laughs> to run, he is not in his clear head he's floating in the clouds almost it's almost mm -hmm. like the i mean the orange grove which by the way he looks at it a pamphlet at one point and it's, he's dreaming of a typical orange grove you yeah, understand typical it's not california orange grove. orange grove you orange go grove. Yeah. Uh, okay yeah so yeah I, I, wait, way to be vague <laughs> like thanks for the stock photo <laughs> yeah i love it oh i i love it because it's just I, it's clearly used for the gag because they wouldn't put the word typical in there unless they wanted it to be that exactly. <laughs> right. And like, you don't, I, that's something you don't see a lot of anymore. And I go like average dream house. <laughs> right. Well, and, and it kind of becomes in a weird way, like in a perverted way, it becomes like Chekhov's orange grove because yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he, uh, he sees this in there and you go, okay, so like he thinks he's buying this. John Durston comes in and tells him, it's like, well, what we sold you was actually no good. It turns out it's not good. And he goes, no, this is what you sold me. It's like, no, dude, that says typical. So you're waiting for the, the hammer to drop here. And it's mm -hmm. like, how shitty is this thing he actually bought? Yeah, and, and and he and he even rebuffs it and lives in the cloud of denial by going like, no, 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 no. You tell them they found out how good it was, but it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's that's one of those elements of just like this denial that Harold lives in. I'm just like, it is a beautiful comic setup, but that doesn't matter, John, because where are my kumquats? <laughs> the kumquat guy, dude. Oh my god, it that is. <laughs> 
<laughs> that guy is an insane force of nature. Yeah. This is one of those moments where you sympathize with Harold because this guy is fucking unreasonable. <laughs> so unreasonable. He needs 10 pounds of kumquats. And by the way, he spells kumquats wrong, number yep. one. <laughs> um, and number two... I had to look up what kumquats actually are. Yep. And so it like it and it's I mean, it's funny. They're they're like oranges. Yeah. Um essentially. But and they're like smaller, they're like little tinier ones. Yeah, like. they're they're kinda like navel oranges, like in mm-hmm. a way. Or like like the little cuties. But they they're not exactly that. And so this guy comes in wearing his, you know, his like bowler hat and his mm-hmm. full suit. What the fuck does he need ten pounds of kumquats for? And so urgently. I don't need to tell you about my kink. <laughs> Just give me the kumquat. Yeah. I'm in a hurry. <laughs> For things. Um, yeah, and so, like, this poor guy is not going to get his kumquat. Mr. Muckle comes in, and, Zach, i got to be honest with you. The whole Mr. Muckle scene makes me <laughs> uncomfortable, like, in, in a way that I don't particularly enjoy. Like, it's not my favorite style of comedy. Right. And but like it it goes on and they all play it really well. The the thing that works for me so basically Mr. Muckle is a blind man um, yeah. who also has one of those weird ear trumpets. So yeah. like so he's blind and and, de- and mostly deaf. deaf. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes in, he can't hear anything and he's also very unreasonable in his demands. Like he comes in for chewing gum um and then demands that it be delivered. And the thing, like, the the way that the whole thing works for me is the kumquat guy goes, um, who is that man? And Harold goes, oh, he's the, uh, he's the house detective at the Grand Hotel. And <laughs> it's such a throwaway line, right? Yeah. And he says it so fast, it's like it's swallowed. It's like he hiccups it almost. But yeah. I go, oh, shit. Okay, so uh, that's a joke on law enforcement, which I'm always up for. Yeah, and it's and what, what I love about – you said the correct term, throw away. But it is one that sticks out, and Fields is good at doing this. He'll throw out that line while being involved with physical shtick, while being inv- involved with mumbling, muttering, or moving his face in a certain direction. This, he literally swirls it into one mix. This yeah. isn't – he does a lot of this. He does a lot of this in big broadcasts of 1938, where he's on that golf course swinging around the golf club <laughs> while doing something verbal, while doing something physical. It, it's a nice amalgamation of things. And in the purposes of this, like at one point, he's wrapping up the chewing gum in what's supposed to be the kumquats. It, it, he literally, when Mr. Oh, by the way, Mr. Muckle owes money for property damage on a high scale with those windows on the door <laughs> well and all the light bulbs he breaks too which yeah who who the fuck has light bulbs like laid out like produce it was the 30s they need they didn't know how how to properly do this john we can't we can't fault them for this fine fair <laughs> enough but like you're going that seems like a terrible way of having light bulbs out, but whatever. Okay, yeah. Ed, Ed Wynn designed the store. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This will be funny. <laughs> this is where I'm going to put the light bulbs. You'll sell plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, if they break any of them, they have to... <laughs> people picking up light bulbs like they're hand fruit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say this one weighs about what ten pounds. <laughs> we haven't gotten glass blowing down to a science yet. 
<laughs> I like the way it feels in my hand. <laughs> like, the, yeah, there's some coded bullshit in there. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> that's the secret. The, the thing that kills me, too, is like when he wraps up the chewing gum for Mr. Muckle, it's a very mm-hmm. subtle thing. It was the first time I noticed it was last night when I watched this is the gum is still on the counter. He doesn't actually wrap it up like it falls out like he's so good at the physicality that he gets all this paper and all this twine and he's wrapping it up and the gum falls out, which yeah. I know was not an accident. No, it's not. Everything that you see him fumbling, whether it's that a pen on a little chain yeah. flipping around any little detail like that, it's all choreographed. And there is a way to kind of notice some of it, not all of it, but some of it. Literally step by step, frame by frame, pause this on your DVD player or Blu-ray player and scan it one frame at a time. You will see how everything is moved in a certain fashion. It's like it's 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 the same kind of exhilaration you get from freeze framing certain Looney Tunes cartoons and watching the individual drawings and realizing what it takes to make somebody look like a noodle cartoon. Like it is like it is a mastery of high feet and. You know, like even down to the timing of Mr. Muckle leaving the store and walking out into the middle of traffic. Oh, dude, that's that's old Hollywood. And you cannot recreate that level of peril because those cars are passing so close to him. Somebody's going to die. Uh huh. (laughs) And it's and it's there's something audacious about that that I admire. But it's but it is the same thing of just like I would never try that like. I mean, shoot, I mean, Brad, Brad and I were like super careful on the recent like real nerds um, Thanksgiving Day ske- or Black Friday sketch to be like, let's we got to drive the car in this certain way and we'll do this certain takes and I'm going to pull up really carefully and whatnot. Meanwhile, I'm watching this one. And I'm like, this blind guy is going to walk into the middle of a bunch of cars. <laughs> well, yeah, because like he sends him out. And he's like, OK, go across the street. No one's coming. And then sirens come. And mm-hmm. then it's just it, it looks like a demolition derby down the street and the cars are passing by Mr. Muckle in front and in back. And you're going, this is a level of peril that old Hollywood could get away with that you could never do now. No. And you, he, you he gets across the street safely. It's I mean, to this day, kind of like makes me hold my breath while it's happening. Um, but ultimately, that, like also Mr. Muckle's kind of a prick. And I'm like, yeah. I'm kind of waiting for when I watch this movie for like the the 97th time for him to finally get clipped by at least a rearview mirror. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it, it's it's kind of the amazing part of the of the way they write these comedies, and it's like you know like the way Fields character Fields is does, designed as a character, even the most sympathetic character to a normal realm is designed to ultimately inhibit him, and. You, again, I'm I'm really glad you brought up the Seinfeld and the Larry Dale the Larry David analogy because it is that you are dealing with very uncomfortable comedy in a lot of respects where people that would normally be your sympathy point are being used as the instigator for an issue and you know not even Benny took it to this kind of realm like there's like something much more reserved about what Benny did Fields was you know literally making dogs children the blind like all these it's. <laughs> It's something you can't do today unless you're Larry David. I don't no, no, I don't no, see a lot I, of comedies doing it. Dude, I disagree with you in that because I brought up the Farrelly's earlier. The Farrelly's mm. in weird ways are some of the most progressive filmmakers because they like to say disabled people exist or differently abled people exist. Mm-hmm. Right? And you even think about something like there's something about Mary 
where the guy is in the wheelchair and Ben Stiller is carrying like that heavy fucking armoire on his back. Yeah. And the guy goes, hey, dickhead, like you already put a nick in my fucking piano. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm sorry. This is really heavy. He goes, what I wouldn't give to know what heavy feels like. And so this guy's in a wheelchair and he's a dick instead of being like this really saccharine hero. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, oh, how noble that you're in this wheelchair. No, that guy's kind of a, just an asshole. It's um, it's not. We actually, we talked about the movie Freaks from 1932 um, uh, on the show recently. And, you know, the way there's honesty portrayed in the way, you know, you have differently abled people in that in those movies engaged in performance and again as stated on that episode that this is tricky subject matter you watch it at a comfort level but you do watch people like harry earls and daisy earls taking chances with actual characterizations where they don't always come off as the best people in the world right and i do i i you know i'd have to dig further into it with the fairlies and whatnot because now i'm kind of recalling some stuff in dumb and dumber where they tackle that certain that the certain elements of that as well but it is like it is interesting how the Fairleys have adopted several different elements of what would be considered difficult comedy to approach today. The Zuckers have done this too in different ways as well, like those two. So yeah, you're right. That does it does exist. It's just in a different it, fashion. It's pretty rare though. Yeah, and and, and like the, there's there's a way of the, a conventional way of, of conveying differently abled people to where they're always they're always portrayed with a certain nobility and in a weird way that becomes dehumanizing because then all of a sudden they're these beacons of virtue and good, which, mm-hmm. which is to say like Mr. Muckle can be blind and still a prick. Like, yeah, you, you can, you can take sympathy on him because he can't see, he can't hear, but that doesn't mean he has like total license to be a jerk. No, in- yeah, no, 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 not at all. I think, and I think with anything, you deal with it on a case by case basis. I don't think every comic direct, yeah, I don't think every comic director can handle it. And you know, and it's been a while since I without punching down, like that's the big thing. That's the big thing. You're so like in in the Farrelly's, they clearly have respect for these actors as people, and it's like, Mm -hmm. no, you exist in this universe, and you have equal footing with the the regular, the regularly abled. Uh, folks in this universe and so you're going to give it to each other in the same way that everyone else does and like because you're grounding it in character that conveys respect yeah when the and actually i i do know that when the fairlies punch up they punch up at very specific targets that have the that there is an intent and a reason behind that even in the three stooges movie that they did where they're punching up at uh at reality tv stars or you know like you know elements of of capitalism in that respect like they're they're not afraid to go above that but they never punch down which is important in comedy because punching down punching down indicates a disrespect for the way comedy is constructed as a whole and you know, and in the case of WC and this particular scene and whatnot, it's not so much about punching up or punching down. It's presenting humanity at its flawed finest. Agreed. And that's one of those that's one of those things about the character of Mr. Muckle, not too dissimilarly from, you know, like Fields and how like Benny would also do this in certain respects where there are characters that are specifically designed that you would initially have the most sympathy for, but the way it is framed, it is desired intent is to put you on 
Benny's side, but while understanding that Benny is not reacting properly. That's like, that's the other problem. Like, it is just like, you have to identify, like, how is the actor responding to the material? And sometimes you don't write it correctly. And that's when it comes off as punching down. Yeah. And then, and like a, a good example is Fields understands that he's playing into humanity's normal mode of function which is to not draw attention to the problem or cause a fuss or a, or a ruckus and it's to the point where he is like you know we say what we want about harold is like how he's henpecked and whatnot he is willing to sacrifice his life to save mr muckle a person <laughs> who has completely destroyed his establishment like, yeah, yeah he's he's cost thousands of dollars well i mean in in 2021 terms i i don't know like i don't know the inflation rate but Mr. Muckle has caused so much damage in his store, but he's still falling all over himself to take care of this old man who just bought five cents worth of gum from him. And it shows that he has the heart, which is, again, one of the reasons why we can relate to Fields yeah. here as opposed to something like the dentist video. But right. it, do- it doesn't matter, John, because where am I come quest? <laughs> <laughs> Because this guy, even after the Mr. Muckle thing, he still wants his fucking kumquats. This guy has got to get to his weird kumquat orgy real quick. <laughs> and but, I, yeah, and he never gets them. Nope, he never gets them, no. And I love how he keeps trying to get them and is getting refused. I'm happy that somebody like this does not get what he deserves. Um, I, or I am wants, happy sorry. That, that he leaves unsatisfied as well. And to, yeah. to put a button in that character, he shows up one more time, and it's right as they're leaving, in California, or leaving for California. Mm-hmm. Harold yeah. is cranking up the car, and he comes up behind him, still with that same exact, like, he's got that fourth gear energy, and he just comes up behind him, what's the matter, out of gas? <laughs> and, like, and Fields' take on that as he drops the whole thing, and he does the thing with his hat again, and he goes, uh, no, put plenty of gas in it. Where are you going? Uh, California. Okay, more power to you. Goodbye. Yeah, and, and then he just storms out of the screen like he comes in like a fucking hurricane. The, the whole thing lasts maybe forty five seconds to defy your expectations too. That's <laughs> that's the beautiful part of it. You're expecting another kumquat s- scenario, and instead you just get him well. going like, yeah, he goes like happy trails, motherfucker, and then just <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 actually like that is a great moment in that. It's a great callback. And, yeah, it is. It's wonderful and. Now we get ba- we are, we we basically get Baby Leroy plot wise in terms of a progress on the plot we're dealing with. Uncle Bean has now died. R.I.P. Uncle Bean, um, or as it or as Norman calls him, Uncle Bean, <laughs> and uh, so R.I.P. Bean. And the uh, now the white like well first of all Amelia uh, gets at him about what kind of flowers should they send. <laughs> Dude, and, great wordplay in there. Yeah. Um, where, where Fields that, is like, uh, how about some nice uh, uh, hollyhorks? Hollyhorks. Hollyhorks. Yep. <laughs> um, and he, and she tries to tell him, like, it's your relative. You said it. <laughs> like, he's going to pick out flowers. And she's like, how about some bougainvillea and a dash of jacaranda? And there's, like, there's all these obscure-sounding flowers that I didn't learn until I was probably in my 30s. And I'm I like, still don't know what these are. <laughs> is, is she speaking English? And... So yeah, you're right. That like that's that's a wonderful moment, but um it's it's once he's dead that they end up back at the house and that kind of tees up the back porch. Yeah, it does. And the only other thing that we have within that store we should get to is baby Leroy's molasses mess. Oh, sure, yeah. Which 
here's why I really we really need to bring this up. Only WC Fields as a personality would have a business that would have to close down for the day due to molasses. <laughs> Closed that's on account of molasses. Yeah, that's my favorite signed gag in a movie of this era <laughs> to now. Like, it has replaced others because I'm just like, that is just lovely. It's, it sells the point. You know, and this is right. like tame baby Leroy, too. <laughs> well, and, and how weird is it that, you know, you, you go to this store and there's just basically... Can you imagine going into a grocery store now and seeing just a giant wooden barrel of molasses with a fucking tap on it? Like, and with a dish at the bottom too, like so it's 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 clearly it looks not like gonna... a dog's dish, yeah. <laughs> like it it looks like a dog's food or water dish, but yep. like yeah, he just basically pulls it, and then Everett is too stupid to even just turn it off right away. Yeah, and well, it, Everett Everett's response is, "I told him it wouldn't be a good idea," <laughs> yeah. or no, I told him or, I wouldn't do it if I was it. him. Yeah, and and wh- why on earth are you listening to Baby Leroy? Like, is this kid <laughs> Damien? <laughs> you told him you wouldn't do it if you was him. Get him out of here. And also, one thing you'll never see today: someone putting on a big ass fur coat to go chop up some meat. Like that is a <laughs> that is a nice old timey touch right there. When I was just like, I've I've worked in. I've worked in uh, undisclosed grocery store where the where I was in the meat department, and we have like those little coats and whatnot. Yeah, like you the white coat. Not coats. have a nice. Yeah, we don't have a fur coat. What the fuck? <laughs> well, no, dude, and it's like a it's like a full length fur coat too. It's like a it's like a nineteen seventies pimp. Yeah, like, the the way he's wearing, like he puts it on, and I feel like he puts on a hat too. Like, yeah, he puts on like this kind. It's not a Russian cap, but it's like some form of equivalent, like a like what we would consider like a beanie or some kind of like thing today, right? Like, and to go into the fucking cooler where the meat is for like ten seconds, mm-hmm. and it's like, man, buck up a little here, dude. Like, it's, yeah, it cannot possibly be that cold for that but short is, of a time. But it is one more thing that Fields does to draw out the humor of his incidental day-to-day scenarios right. there um and we get the molasses scene and mrs duke is um is is uh is uh oh i do love the line where she's going like do you have anything in the way of steaks he's like no i don't have anything in the way of steaks again right for him <laughs> <laughs> nothing in the steaks we get right to them <laughs> and uh and yeah mrs she is so pissed off that her child has been endangered by her own child draining molasses that she leaves. And when before the scene cuts away to that sign that I love so much, you do see W.C. Fields almost slip on the molasses. Oh, yeah. So I'm, almost, I'm almost like wanting to see the tail end of that take going like, did he fucking slip? <laughs> We're just <laughs> seeing the outtake. Like, yeah. that's, the, that's the one detriment of this DVD that's available currently. Um, although it is being released on Blu-ray via Kino Lorber, as I just found out recently. They oh, wow. restored it and remastered it so maybe special features i don't know we'll see but uh it's a very bare bones dvd version that exists as of now well and Uh, i have it as part of a collection so like i have like this 10 wc dvd i have the five version that they released with the red cover and whatnot um and you've got the yeah you've got that set but yeah i mean it's got international house it's a gift you're telling me the old-fashioned way man on the flying trapeze poppy you can't cheat an honest man, my little chickadee, the bank dick, and never give a sucker an even break. 
Oh, shoot. So they combined volumes one and two. Yeah. Oh, shoot. That's cool. When we're done with this episode, I'll show you the fiver that I got. It's like in a nice little set. But yes, we get back to the house. We get further beratement uh, at the behest of Amelia about this Orange Grove scenario, how he's draining the money from this family and him trying to get to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. And and she goes on and on and on, and the phone rings. It's uh, it's someone asking for the maternity hospital, mm-hmm. um, which like the, another small thing Fields does is like he finally gets up to get the phone, and he's standing there holding it, and he he's holding it and he's almost asleep and he goes I can't think of the number, and then it rings again. He goes oh. Like he's like, oh right, I'm not calling someone. I'm here to answer the fucking thing. Yeah. Um. And he, when he leaves the phone call, she gets into him. He tells the truth, and then she, tw- <laughs> she twists it around. Yeah, it's just it's weird. It's 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 a kind of a beautiful like nobody can win here. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one's going to win through this dialogue. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> And this leads him to the porch, and the porch is a masterclass in set construction and art design. And this comes courtesy of Hans Dreyer and John B. Goodman, um, both Paramount uh, picture art directors who clearly worked their ass off on this set because we've got, as you said, the three levels of the house— We've got a trick porch that is designed to collapse within certain weights depending on how it's assembled for each take. You've also got a hole through one of the levels for one of these children to drop various tools, either soft or deadly, through. Mm -hmm. And you also have the fact that things are supposed to collapse and you have to have a level down at the bottom ground for the people to address him from the the ground level up to the top. Well, And it's it's connected to the next house over because there's a clothesline gag. Yes, that's right. Where Mrs. Probachet is putting... Like the various, you know, clothes on the line. And so, like, there's another element where that that kind of reveals itself later. That Like, these things get revealed uh, as the scene progresses. And I would say this is probably the centerpiece of the film. Yeah, it's it's the... Uh... Well, the in the same way that I use, I always use the oil, Derek, and there will be blood as the set piece example. Oh, sure. This is your, this is your big, this is your big moment here, because mm. you could, you could try to say that the picnic scene is big because of the feathers here, but the the porch is a set designed for this and this alone. It does, and even and as we said before, the story of this film is pretty irrelevant in comparison to what the gags are supposed to be <laughs> like it really doesn't matter if harold gets his orange grove or not really does no and we can talk about the ending here like at some point but yeah like i mean and and we'll get there i'm sure but i mean i i mentioned the clothesline that mrs probachet has um the movie plot wise is basically a pretty thin clothesline for a lot of set pieces and a lot of gags and a lot of things <laughs> to where they were field s- sketches and they were field mm-hmm. signature bits. And basically, how like how can you have something that stands up enough to string them together? Yeah. And so, like, this whole back porch scene between Baby Dunk, I mean, Baby Leroy, um, 
you know, the Carl Lafon guy, the vegetable man, the uh, the coconut. Um, you know, there's there's so many things in this where you're doing so many different kinds of comedy all in this one kind of set piece where it takes place at this one location. And even, like, it allows for him to be distracted by something that is clearly not an issue. So, like, the clothesline makes a squeaking sound. He thinks it's a mouse. He gets a mousetrap immediately. Yeah. We take time away from the elaborateness, uh, elaborate nature of this set to just close in on one shot, one insert shot of the mousetrap <laughs> being laid down on the ground. It does nothing to pay this off, but it's just one more piece of it to add to that comedy. It builds and builds and builds. And once this porch swing finally fucking collapses on him which it's <laughs> it's a it's wonderful how it's framed too because it's framed in such a way that clearly there you can you realize in the aftermath that there is a safety that's keeping that held on and that it's intentionally lowered a bit but it, it you you are fooled the first time you are fooled the first time by thinking that this is actually a rickety thing that's going to break the moment i look away <laughs> or like within 5 seconds of him sitting on it you, there's tension um it, it's it's not hitchcockian suspense at all by any stretch but when he sits on it I'm worried about him laying on it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And, and and he even fixes it at one point. And the fact that the whole thing finally collapses with a shotgun blast mm-hmm. is so, like it it it's literally for me the only thing that could have paid it off properly. It takes you it, – it's the nice – you literally go out with a bang mm-hmm. on that moment. Like you – and it starts off quiet too. That's the thing. It builds with its noise. The noise gets louder and or more annoying as the scene goes on. Like, you know, you start with the Lafong thing, but then you have the 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 big the the back and forth between the mother and the daughter about uh, about nothingness that just oh. keeps escalating further. And and I will tell you, Baby Leroy has my favorite like holy shit gag in the movie when he's dropping the grapes. It's not the ice pick afterwards. It's the it's the second grape that he drops, and it f- flips right into his fucking mouth. <laughs> yeah, when it lands in Fields' mouth, yeah. Yeah, and he's just like... <laughs> <laughs> he chews it a little bit and spits it, and then they, they cut to baby Leroy rubbing his eye as mm-hmm. if he just rifle-shotted this back up through the hole, like roughly 12 feet in the air. <laughs> like, that's such a great shot because it goes, ah, whoo! Yep. And and then you cut to immediately to a shot of baby Leroy going, Oh God, like right in his eye. And his immediate response as a baby at this point is, This fucker has to die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna drop this ice pick. And I love a good sound effect with something flipping that's going to nearly kill somebody because that thing fucking lands nice and neat on the arm bench of this porch swing. Yeah. And yeah, it's fucking delightful. And we're basically brought to the the car ride which we alluded to with the um uh the callback appearance of Mr. Kumquat guy and him trying to get this car started before f- you do that Zach yeah. I, I I just have to mention the Carl Lafong guy real quick yes because my dad is the one who introduced me to WC Fields and right. so he got into it he he had seen the fatal glass of beer which uh, is funny. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It's a short. Um, mm-hmm. But when he was in the army, one of the independent TV stations out in Baltimore where he was stationed did like an all night WC Fields marathon. 
And in the army, you're bored out of your mind all the time. And so he stayed up and he watched like five hours of this and goes, this is great shit. Parallel to that, one of his college roommate was he got into WC Fields and they didn't talk about it until like VHS came out and this guy sent my dad a bunch of tapes. Um, And when they would call on the phone, my dad's friend used to say, this is Carl LaFong, LaFong, capital L, small a. And that's how he would do the thing on the phone. So my dad taught me that. And I used to say it to him when I was a little kid. And I would say, Yafong. <laughs> and so, like, the Carl LaFong thing, I have such great fondness for. Because the way this guy spells this is, like, labored. You know? Yeah. Capital He's L, detailed. small a. Capital F, small o. Small n, small g. And he smiles He's- at the end. He's built his sales pitch. That's the that's the beauty right. of it. Like, because his is an insurance salesman, which, you know, this guy gets quoted a lot for this movie. And doing research, I noticed like every person that I spoke to had the Carl LaFong bit. Yeah, you know, put in there. It's why it's the one that I want to play for the trailer. Which that's a note for myself to remember in the editing room. But uh, the but he was T. Roy Barnes. This guy appeared in over 50 films the last year that he would be making movies was after it's a gift he would have two more movies before he would stop working in film altogether Hmm. but this guy clearly has a another character character role aspect to him not too dissimilar from howard he has a distinct delivery he's a good foil for fields it's one of many other elements that work cohesively in this film and you know, there are several spelling gags in this movie, but whether it's kumquats <laughs> or LaFong, LaFong works so well because we're dealing with the best set piece of that movie. Like, yeah. kumquats is good on its own. LaFong is like, it's just one more thing in this grander scheme that just, it's the cherry on top. I put no, it, ag- it's the cherry on top. Agreed. And Zach, one thing I wanted to point out is, Fields always had an obsession with names and was so good at cooking up weird names. So, I mean, if you think about the bank, the bank dick, Egbert Suze, mm-hmm. you know, or he would refer to a Butler character as Mahat McCain Jeeves. Um, yeah. You know, and the, like the pro wrestling character in the movie I'm forgetting right now was called Kukalaka Mishabub. Yeah. And, and so like all these insane names would populate these films. There's not that many of them here in It's a Gift, but... When I was thinking about this, one of the things you told me to think about is where does the comedy of It's a Gift or W.C. Fields show up in contemporary pop culture? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think about the football player sketch from Key and Peel. Oh, yes. <laughs> where, like that to me is a very W.C. Fields kind of thing where you have this obsession with names. And they talked about the first time they saw uh, a football player named Debrickashaw Ferguson. <laughs> and you go Debrickashaw like that. There's no way that's a real name. And so Peel wrote that sketch. And the first time he showed it to Key, Keegan Michael Key, he looked at it and he said, "I know immediately what this is." And he said, within 30 seconds of reading it, I was choking to death with laughter. <laughs> and when you look at something like W. C. Fields. And these people have these insane names. Even something as simple as Lafong or Bissonnet, 
mm-hmm. where you're playing with names and you're subverting expectations in terms of the pure joy sometimes of the phonics of saying these things. You can trace that directly to something like Key and Peel, where they're doing one of their most iconic sketches. And that, to me, is where old Hollywood shows up. And if you go back and look at it, you go, oh, yeah, I kind of recognize this energy because Key and Peel did it really well, too. Yeah. And actually, we were you were bringing up these wonderful names that Field would have for his characters. I have two that I like the most. They come within a year of each other. One is T. Froth and Gill Bellows for oh, Big yeah. Broadcast in 1938. But the other one is from the year later, which this is a movie that is a tough watch today for one element of it, but the rest of it is pretty damn good, is You Can't Cheat an Honest Man. Larson E. Whipsnade. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that one. That one is so good. Larson E. Whipsnade. Yeah, it's he did, um, you know, like, I mean, there's, it's different from the way the Marx Brothers did names. Mm-hmm. Marx Brothers did names that were just like fields. They feel like a symphony, and the Marx <laughs> Brothers feel like bebop with their names. It's like that's the way I kind of dip, differentiate it because W. C. Fields. It feels like it's there's a there's a pun inside the name more often than not. In fact, one thing that I was gonna bring up near the end, but I, I'll bring it up now. You know. The year after this, he go, he gets in the role of Macabre in David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. And Macabre itself is kind of like an odd name. And Dickensian names were an influence for him. He oh, did yeah. draw on Dickens. He was a huge Dickens fan. And so a lot of these names that he gets from these films are indeed like, you know, drawing off of a literary history that he didn't have. His, In fact, his wife, we didn't talk about the fact he was married, but he did separate from his wife like basically they were virtually apart for the rest of their marriage until his death but she was the one who encouraged him to educate himself further and he she taught him to read and write didn't she yep and one of the big things that was noted in research was that like this is a man who didn't carry a bunch of clothes in his trunk but he had a shit ton of books in his trunk yeah fields falls in line with a lot of comic actors and this doesn't get mentioned a lot a lot of these guys did not get a proper education because either they didn't some people will like say they didn't pay attention in school others were just like you know being run through the ringer of like a bad childhood whether it be abuse at home or being led astray by like a you know a little street gang or something like that or just weird environments by today's standards and a lot of these people over uh, overcompensated in their later years with education dick cavett always said that groucho marx became far more educated than the people who went to college and read all the books that people who went to college said they read <laughs> and i feel that fields is in that same league and it's it would make complete sense that fields and the brothers would be friends later in life to the point sure. where Harpo and Groucho would steal stories about W.C. Fields from each other. And like Groucho, Groucho adopted one of Harpo's stories about Fields down the line about being in the attic and having stuff with pro. I can't remember how the bit goes, but it's, you know, this is this is another example of the genius and the understanding that this is all meticulous. And this is not, you know, dumb slapstick, something low brow, you know, where this can be perceived as that, but once you deconstruct this, it's actually 10 times more brilliant than, you know, most of the comedy you will see today in certain respects. Yeah. And I think that's actually, you know, this isn't the best sketch in the the film, but we'll get to it right now is the picnic. Yeah. 
And so it's not my favorite. The, yeah. So pot, plot wise, they've already left for California. And along the way, they've stopped by a traveling caravan. We see W. Fields, w. C. Fields sing a little bit. Um, my my biggest belly laugh in the movie is him fucking with that uh, uh, Chase Lounge, and <laughs> and Kathleen Howard goes, "Don't forget, don't forget to put some wood on the fire, dear." And he's so frustrated with this chair, he just drops the thing on the fire. Yep. <laughs> I was watching that last night. I had forgotten that he did that, and I I literally belly laughed out loud so hard because. He's so fed up with it that he just drops the thing on the fire and then he sings with those guys and the cow throws him off key. Like the cow from off screen, he's singing terribly. Yeah. And then the cow just comes in and that like that just killed me. But yeah, we get to the picnic. Yeah, the picnic. So the the setup is is that they're driving and they miss the regular auto area like picnic yeah, spot. Yeah, the campground essentially. The, yeah, exactly. And so they miss the turn and so they turn into a gated private property area that where the gate has been opened because one of the guards is trying to shoo away another person trying to sneak in. Yeah, some looky loos. Yeah, exactly. Another example of like the nice timing of like, oh, this guy's coming out. These guys accidentally wander in. They're not paying attention to the private property element of this. Right. And uh, they run into a statue on the way over to their little picnic ground. And he's like, that's the Venus de Milo. <laughs> it's a statue, you idiot. <laughs> and they sit down and have this picnic. Now, there's one shot and one gag that is imperfect in this film that I noticed. In, it's in the picnic one, and it's with the tomato can. Yeah. You can see that that tomato juice is coming off from off screen. That is pretty easy to spot. It doesn't yeah, matter. It's, it's pretty hilarious still. <laughs> it's not bad. I, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole picnic thing is, I mean, it's, first of all, clearly they're in a private residence. And, like, it's, it's one of those things where you're watching it, and you go... I don't take them to be this oblivious and like the, the suspension of disbelief in this scene uh, is just a little bit of a bridge too far for me. Yes, but it does have one of the best lines in the movie is, is within this scene. Is it the sundial line? No, I'm referring to when the dog gets the pillow (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and he chases the pillow and he's like, that's one of my, those are my mother's, those are my mother's pillow. Those were, no, no, those were my mother's feathers, feathers. And she goes, I didn't know your mother had feathers. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no, it's never knew your mother. Yeah. Never knew your mother had feathers. (laughs) Yeah. Your mother had feathers. Um, No, I, you're right. That is, that is a good line. Um, Yeah. And yeah, he's he's fighting with the dog. It's a down pillow. Um, it it's it's a very like very very slapsticky. Like this part is more sort of gross out slapsticky than anything else. Like he's stuffing all the crackers in his mouth, and they're like falling out of his out of his you know maw. And Norman opens his mouth, and one lands in there, and you go. Gross. He's trying to catch the crackers. It looks like like falling snowflakes. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what he's doing. And I go, nah, I like, I get it. This scene isn't exactly for me. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not perfect, but it is interesting to see how everything unfolds because, like, you know, if you want an example of how to work with animals on mm. screen, it's interesting to watch that dog pulling out the pillow and watching how not just fields and the dog are performing, but how the film is clearly cranking up its frame per rate speed a little bit here. Not much, 
just enough to connote some speed. Oh, it's not and, like a Jet Li movie or something. No, or and nor is it like a silent film comedy where they're you know working at a right. different frame rate to accelerate motion. Yeah, not but there like is Charlie some... Chaplin Modern Times or some shit. No, yeah, not him skating. Like, right, right, right. <laughs> but but just enough. Sometimes they would do these in in other films to connote like a plane taking off. That's clearly not a plane that can fly. Just so you can see <laughs> something move and. It it does end with them being promptly kicked off the property, but with Kathleen Howard standing up, like and just yeah. shouting right back at these men on screen, yeah, which again like shows her always kind of in this position of not not necessarily even strength because she has no hand here, like you know this is bullshit. They're clearly trespassing, but clearly from a place of fearlessness. Yeah, she's she's. She's not afraid to stand up for herself, which is and and it's an element that's unique in characters like from this era. So when we see it, we do need to acknowledge it like these things do exist. The context in which they're presented was not the way we're looking at it today necessarily, but because of the way art is and how we can interpret it, we can see it through those that lens and we don't have to relegate it to. You know, like it, there is a negative stereotype attached to what she's portraying, but you look at it from another point of view and watching how like this is a few and far between with what women are expected to do in film at the time. Right. Like you can a- appreciate that accomplishment. And she takes this further into the finale of the movie because we're finally at the end of the movie. And the ending is. I got to be honest, it's in the in the grand scheme of fields, it's it's where you get to see him very emotionally vulnerable, which is Yeah. It's not that this is unheard of in Fields films, but my favorite Fields, as I've alluded to with some of my selections, is where he's off his rocker nuts. Yeah. Um because I just love that portrayal, but watching him in this film, I loved the way his 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 bruised ego is on display whatever ego that is left in harold bissonette is decimated because if you notice throughout the entire film we've talked about field being a drunk or or an alcoholic enthusiast yeah yeah, (laughs) sure yeah and um you noticed in this film for the most part he does not take a take a drink in this movie until the end it's not until he opens up that flask that yeah, he's that's actually one, because it turns out, sure enough, the McKillen Ranch that he bought is the most dilapidated shithole you've ever seen in your life. It's just exactly it's it's taken over by tumbleweeds and disrepair, and you know, like the house is disgusting and falling apart, and it's Amelia, missing topsoil. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's obviously a young orange tree. That's a weed, you idiot. Um. She leaves him. He goes to sit down on the car. The car completely falls apart in one of my favorite sight gags. Like, the way that car (laughs) just completely falls apart, like, the way they gimmicked that, to me, was incredible. That's something I want to know. Like, I would love to look at the schematics of the way they constructed those prop gag cars to be like, where's the where's the trigger for it? And what does it, like, which extends, like, which dismantles first? Totally. Like... And and I'll tell you, Zach, like the VHS copy we had when I was growing up, it was a freeze frame of that car on the way down when he sits on the running board. Ooh. And so like he he's sitting down and he and you can see him start to 
you know, catch himself. Um, but that's where, like, that's where they froze it, and that's what's on the cover of the VHS that we had when I was growing up. Oh, snap. And so, so they... yeah, it's, it, it's better than any of the movie posters because most of them are just, like, him and baby Leroy, and it looks like, you know, your average kind of 1930s poster where everyone has, like, two rougie of cheeks and shit. You're selling the faces. You're not selling the movie. <laughs> right, exactly. But th- this was clearly released once home video became a real thing. And they chose that, and so it's kind of you know sepia toned, um, and it and it's him at the end where basically everything has gone to shit, and then we kind of get the Deus Ex Machina ending. Yes. Now, before we get to the Deus Machina ending, I want to point out with that car thing. When you notice that he's sitting back in it, I don't know if every and anybody who's listening to this, whether it's John listening to me right now or the audience. When you do something like that, when you're falling on your back or even literally bringing yourself down to the ground, you got to imagine how many times he had to do physical shticks like that on stage. How many times a day, especially in vaudeville, because you're performing more than one show a day for multiple days in a row with virtually no day off whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time you get to Broadway, you finally get a day off. And to <laughs> to know that that particular kind of gag, the way he moves down and then up to then get away from the car. It's one of those things where you're just like, that takes timing because if he falls wrong, he might fall on his fucking back in this prop car. Like that's where you see that, like that, that attention to the detail that fields possesses as a performer. These are all like vaudeville comics are the bravest fucking people you will ever read about. Not just for what they did on stage, but what they had to endure off stage. Like, and in that regard, the Marx Brothers are literally gods because they put up with every ind- indignity and still manage to be superheroes on stage. Um, Fields in the same because how many times did he knock himself in the fucking head with the trick ball on the pool table or, right. <laughs> or fall on that porch swing? <laughs> well, dude, I, if you've ever read about the litany of injuries that the Three Stooges endured... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just the physical toll that that took on their body, which, I mean, it makes sense that I love both vaudeville and professional wrestling because this is stage scripted entertainment that comes with a real physical cost as well. Yeah. And those are two are one in the same like that. It's, it's, this wasn't intended as part of our episode, but like, you know, you do think about it like I'm not the biggest wrestling fan in the world, but I don't disrespect it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that. Because it is scripted and mm-hmm. it is performance based, it is vaudeville. It's no different than the way I look at YouTube performers to many extents today or TikTok. Like you're finding a platform for cheap entertainment, whether free or for a nickel, in the case of vaudeville. <laughs> you know, like, and not every act's gonna be good, not every act is gonna be yeah. great. But you still get the choice to look at that variety. With wrestling, it's like playing the palace in certain respects because you get elaborate characters and it's not the price of a Broadway ticket, which even back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was still expensive by the comparison of going to the Orpheum Circuit theaters. Right. Like this is, it's kind of brilliant the way those guys break their backs at the same capacity that those vaudeville comedians or acrobats and adagio acts would. Um, and there's there's such a zest for let's give them a fucking show. Yeah, like exactly. No, no matter what the cost is, whether we're talking vaudeville, whether we're talking wrestling, whether we're talking touring musicians, you know, like no matter who you are, even if you're on the street fucking busking, 
Like there's mm-hmm. something pure about like, you know what? I'm going to go out here and I'm going to win over these motherfuckers no matter who they are. Even if they're on their way to shopping, I'm going to get them to put a goddamn dollar in my in my guitar case. Right? And so like Fields when when you talk about him and this car bit, that becomes just a higher platform and becomes a different expression of very low art in such a beautiful way. Yeah. To, to you're, where you're, you're basically just putting everything on the line to get a laugh, get a reaction, to put on a fucking show, man. And there's yeah. such beauty in that. And you know what I find interesting in, in, in that is that to this day, no matter how many times we put people like Fields or Chaplin or Keaton or Lloyd on a pedestal, mm-hmm. We're still doing this exact same thing, but it always takes that 10-year waiting period for there to be respect <laughs> for it. Because when somebody starts something like a vaudeville, it gets disrespect for years until it finally receives the legitimacy. And then, of course, it's outmoded by some other form of popular entertainment, whether that be movies or radio, that keeps evolving and extending. We still have this 10-year, 10, 10 to 15-year waiting fucking period to understand that art comes in these different forms of expression. And then we, we keep having a debate back and forth about what is, what is cinema. And I'm just like, it's constantly changing much like all of entertainment. And you've just got to accept that. Well, dude, but, and, and, and anytime a new thing comes on, um, it's only appreciated by like weirdo people on the margins mm-hmm. who like can appreciate it in the moment. And then once it's passed, you're right. There's this 10 year waiting period. It's immediately replaced with this like wistful nostalgia about it that mm-hmm. like is kind of misplaced because it's like it was going on and you were shitting on it at the time. But now, all of a sudden, now that it's gone, it's replaced by whatever this new thing is. You go, yeah. oh, man, remember how good it used to be? It's like, no, fuck you. You didn't like appreciate it properly at the time. And so it's OK that you've come around to it now. But man, like sometimes you got to latch on. To, to what's going on. And I, I mean, that's not to say that people are necessarily wrong about it, but it is to say that great shit is almost never appreciated in its own time, which I think is your oh, point. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. That is my point. Because you, like, it, and I'm, when I talk about, like, not appreciated, I mean, like, not taken to the levels of merit that we perceive when it comes to art. Like, you know, I guess we should wrap up the film before we get to the right, ultimate sure. point of something like it's a gift, but it will come back to that. You mentioned the Deus, Deus Ex Machina in this. It is the most convenient of, uh, you know, coming down from the mountain to provide a solution here because the land he bought is conveniently located next to a place where they're going to build a speedway, you know? Yeah, a racetrack. Yeah, exactly. And so... The pr- somebody drives up to him to alert to them to this fact, and yeah, it's Mr. Abernathy who, yeah, who who he meets just a few minutes prior, who who has an orange rag down the road. Yeah, the one that they were hoping theirs would look like, right. and the uh, the people who are out to buy come, and by this point, WC has already had a bit of his, you know, his version of Popeye spinach, which is liquid courage, his reviver. And- <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the uh, he gets into this wonderful bargaining bit. And if I have a favorite line in the movie that isn't the pillow line, mm. because the feather line is great, it's the following when he makes an offer so outrageous that 
the person he's negotiating with goes, you're drunk, and Harold goes, and you're crazy, but I'll be sober tomorrow, and you'll be crazy for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's my WC. That's where I'm getting my, my bold, brash, don't give a fuck WC. It's an uh, all-timer, man. I mean, that yeah. that line has been repurposed and reappropriated and like rewritten to, to suit its purpose in so many ways. But, I mean, when you hear him say it, there's a purity about it, and it feels yeah. like the first time. It, 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 it's, I think it's a payoff to a persona that's developed over the years starting in as early as 1895, 1896, whenever the age is that he's getting into this vaudeville act juggling, that he moves this way. That's an earned line from that experience. Now, it, it, it's, it's a misnomer when it comes to his eventual fate, but let's put, this, put ourselves in 1934. He's earning the right to say this wonderful line on this liquid courage because this persona, which starts off rough on a cinematic level and sound with the dentist, is smoothed out to the point of public acceptance. Um, if, it's funny, if you want to think about it in a certain respect, as we were talking about things finding merit, W.C. Fields was appreciated in his time. And yes arguably beyond when you would think he would fall out of favor because not every comic would be granted that privilege in cinema by the mid forties. Like comedy styles changed damn frequently, virtually every one to two years to the point where you look at a trend from 1935 up to 1945, you see a shift in tone like almost every year. Like, Agreed. It's crazy. But, but but Fields was largely done by about 1940 in terms of like yeah. mainstream film. He found Second Life on the radio. Yes, his 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 following because like let's let's be honest. Never give a sucker an even break is really the final like cap in the cinematic career. But then he starts getting on the radio a few years prior on the Chase and Sanborn Hour with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy where. <laughs> It's not denigrating to say this, even though it sounds like it when I say it. W.C. Fields had to get into a feud with a wooden dummy in order to keep himself relevant. <laughs> well, I mean, at, after after you feud with a fucking baby, dude, I mean, like, how, how much further? This is a step up. <laughs> like, you know, why not get in a feud with a puppet? Because, like, what, like, what is he going to get in a feud with next? A house cat? Like, like I, I'd where, take any of it. <laughs> I, I would, too. But, like, his... His chemistry with this wooden puppet is really something. And, I mean, you it, it's a natural outgrowth of him uh, and baby Leroy having this adversarial one-way relationship. At least Charlie McCarthy, even though he's fake and a puppet, can fight back. He can fight back. And not only that, W.C. Fields isn't wrong to no. say the things he says about Charlie because Charlie's just as much an asshole as he is. It's like... <laughs> It is like watching two jerks duke it out for who's the king of them all. <laughs> yeah, in, in pro wrestling parlance, it's it's heel it's a heel versus heel matchup. Yes, yes, there you go. That's and Bergen's right there in the middle, not really, but in the middle, going like now, Bill, Charlie, calm down. <laughs> like, and I actually I think with this episode, following this episode, there will be an addendum episode where I will play some Charlie McCarthy WC Fields clips for people so that they can understand what we're talking about here. Sure. Because it's it's one thing for us to describe this, it's another thing to listen to it. Because <laughs> first of all it, it's kind of surreal a, to listen to. And the fact that on the radio someone is doing a ventriloquism act, 
which is mm-hmm. purely a visual gag, right? Yeah. Like, you, you have to go an extra step of suspension of disbelief to really give a shit about ventriloquism on the radio. It's, right. it's like, the magic of that's the magic of Edgar Bergen right there because those characters were so real, like they are viscerally real in your head to agreed. the point where Mort- I, I I like Charlie, but Mortimer Snurd's the better character because he's <laughs> that's a that's a wonderfully constructed bit. <laughs> um, Absolutely, but the end. By the way, he does finally get the price that he needs, um, which is forty four thousand dollars and a ranch, just like the one typical ranch that he saw yeah. in the pamphlet. His wife passes out at this wonderful deal, <laughs> and W. C. Fields gets to feel some victory here. Harold has won, um, albeit through very convenient means, and we are left by the end of this film with. I feel like, as we said before, the plot has been bare thread at this point just to give us moments of W.C. Fields. But because the because the gags we discussed uh, build upon each other in such ridiculous ways that they add to the character that we've been enduring with, that even though this ending is convenient, you do still feel triumphant for uh Bissonette at the end of this you're, movie. you're left with a nice soap and water feeling i agree yeah it's it's and it's sometimes when we're talking about films of the past it's easy to start going into these classic films of noir and drama that give you this wonderful like feeling of art and exhilaration but films like these i love talking about because they they leave you with a smile in your face and a whistle in your heart that's 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 how I feel about like anytime I watch a W.C. Fields film, a Burns and Allen film. Ick, I'm currently digging into the work of Jack Benny's cinematic career, going back to it and trying to study it. And it's not all great, but God damn it, do I feel wonderful when I watch it. Absolutely. And W.C. Fields is the same way. <laughs> well, dude, Zach, today uh, in my head, all day I've had uh, California Here I Come, which kicks off the movie and then we get a literal needle drop mm-hmm. like a visual needle drop of them playing that song right before they get in the car and drive across the country to California and I've just sort of had that in my head and it's put a pep in my step today just yeah. because I mean I grew up loving this movie I, I would watch it alone in the basement my dad showed it to me a bunch and then I got to the point where I would just put it on I've seen this more than any other Fields movie you know I think that this is one that I will start going back to more. More importantly, I think it's one that I'm going to start because I did when I told you I hadn't watched it before. I had seen clips from it, but I hadn't watched it in full before. And to watch it in full and not in segments and chunks was a different experience because I got an hour and eight minutes of unbridled joy and vaudevillian antics that culminate story-wise in a feasible way. But also, we talked about it. This film does not possess a lot of problems of the past that are usually very prevalent in comedies of this era. This is literally one of the one of the rare examples of those films that our grandparents and parents talk about of why can't entertainment be the way it used to, wholesome and clean. <laughs> and like this is one of those rare examples of like, yes, I could show this to my three-year-old nephew right now and watch him fall on his butt laughing at W.C. Fields. Um, That's a good point. And, you know, like you can't say that about every comedy of this era. I mean, Three, three Stooges, 
possibly but you know and i don't think you'd get the same arguments of like this, this violence will inspire children because it's clearly so staged you can't take it seriously but that's how i get this feeling from this and i think like it's evidenced by the modern reception to this film this film has a hundred percent on the aggregate on rotten tomatoes i will tell you though in its time there 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 is a little bit of miftiness and there's only one real review that i was able to you know pull up and it's from the literary digest uh in 1935 which declared it it is clumsy, crude, and quite amateurish in its appearance. It merely happens that a great com- comedian appears in it, and he has a free hand in his brilliant clowning, with the result that defects become unimportant and the film emerges as a comedy delight. I feel like that's a bittersweet way to review that film. I think you should say, all these beautiful culminations come forth to make a bu- a bare-thread plot work. <laughs> like, Well, I, it's, I mean, it's a backhanded compliment. To yeah, be sure. exactly. It, it's like, it's like this movie is clumsy as fuck, but because it has an all-time transcendent comedian comedian in it, it's highly watchable. Is mm-hmm. the the nut of what you're getting at there? But yeah. it's it's one of those things too. I've seen in, you know, like occasionally CNN will do like the history of comedy or Comedy Central will have like a bunch of talking heads talking about comedies and whatever. Yeah. I know that this is Judd Apatow's favorite. W.C. Fields movie, um, because you he can said tell that about, by his work. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, really. Um, the point is, um, in terms of comedy voices, this is in many ways the Fields movie that people who write and create the best comedy that you love. This is their favorite Fields yeah, movie, and I think that the when I said it shows in Apatow's work, you know. How often is Apatow in his films dealing with a family family environment and right. the mis and the 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 misadventures that fall within there? Um, that that I think t- comes from somebody who is able to appreciate those types of films in its earliest forms and stages. This right. is a creator's film because the person who's at the forefront of it in the image is the creator of the piece. We right. didn't talk. about we didn't talk like too in depth about it, but like this. So the, the, the play that this is based on is JP McAvoy with stories and designs of these sketches by Charles Bogle. Charles Bogle is fields. This is, this is something he built for himself with Ziegfeld in 1925 after settling a dispute. He then gets the chance through Jack Cunningham's script to perfect it for the cinema. And, Combined with McLeod knowing how to frame that gag mm-hmm. at each given moment, especially as we talked about the the porch scene, that's when you culminate in true comic genius. People don't give comedy credit because there's one, it, it, it's, it's difficult to take it on the same level as drama. I don't understand why to this day because, frankly, it's harder to do comedy. It's easy yes. to do a drama. And therefore, it doesn't hold the same merit as a that a comedy should it's similar to how i feel about horror films i feel like horror films are ones that should be getting way more prestige pushed around them because it's hard to scare people just as it's hard to make people laugh well easy to make somebody cry it's the same (laughs) it's the same architecture Mm -hmm. like it for a horror movie and a comedy movie which is why i mean we brought up jordan peele earlier or i did yeah Um, and and if you think about the transition between you know writing a good comedy sketch to doing a proper horror payoff, 
those rhythms are kind of the same. Like you understand the step, like the groundwork that you have to lay to pay off later. Mm-hmm. And, and to do that, that like that's story architecture in its purest form. Yeah. You, you, uh, you get the same set, you have the same setups and ethics, um, and ethos from setting up a joke that you do setting up a scare, right? You're, you, you have a setup and a delivery and a payoff like that you, you have to hit each mark correctly or otherwise it will not work. Right. And you know, the, the, the precision of this film stands itself above other examples of vaudevillians at work because not every vaudevillian transits into cinema correctly. Sure. You have people like Stu Magel and Bud in the middle of International House. They're not hitting on the same cylinder as WC in that movie, obviously. But you do, but you then you also have Burns and Allen who do oddly enough work for cinema because of the way they position Burns and Allen. Does it work 100% in film by film basis? But, you know, like there are ways to make these personalities work, but fields inhabited so many elements that it takes to make a movie yeah whether it's physical gag verbal assault the ability to combine those two when needed there are elements there that is perfect for the cinematic touch and i think within that and we've talked about it throughout the entire episode what these influences are but i think a big thing that i would point to we've talked about this a couple times with comedies before is that there aren't many films that are catered to a specific performer in the way that this movie is constructed anymore. You have to look in those different forms. And that's why your Seinfeld analogy was the best one or the Larry David analogy was the best one because that is comedy based around a persona. Now Seinfeld is, is a dual scenario, but it's still Larry David inserting his comedy into Seinfeld. Um, and then the purest form of it being curved in, in a lot of regard. I agreed. And, and I, I, would, I would add one more in talking to my dad today about this. Because, I mean, before I did this, I obviously had to talk to my dad. But he also mm-hmm. brought up Albert Brooks. Yeah. Uh, which I think you'd look at a character like Harold Bissonnette, Her- Bissonnet, um, or even Larry David. And Albert Brooks embodies this too, where they are trying to do the right thing as they see it and they are working towards that but circumstances in the world keep changing Mm -hmm. and they're evolving and they end up being technically correct but spiritually wrong in a lot of ways and so i i think albert brooks is another good example of that where i mean you know lost in america um is is a pretty tremendous example of that type of energy but um, different flavor from both Fields and Larry David. Yeah. And also Fields has developed, or uh, Fields, in the way that, I was going to say, Brooks has done this in his acting work to a T and expressing different sides of his b- ability to play a character, which, I mean, Frank, you can see elements of that whenever time he pops up, pops up on The Simpsons because he <laughs> he has a couple different modes that he right. plays in, but they all work effectively because, like, be frank hank scorpio is russ cargill they just have different <laughs> names but hank you know, scorpio one of my favorite all-time simpsons characters unreal hey homer which country do you like more or hate more italy or france <laughs> france uh, nobody no ever one says, ever says italy, italy. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you wouldn't if you wouldn't mind shooting some people on the way out that'd be great <laughs> one, one of my all-time favorite homer reactions is, is like do you have any sugar he goes sure and he digs the loose sugar out of his pockets <laughs> 
puts it in Homer's coffee, and he goes, sorry, it's not in packets. Would you like any cream? And Homer goes, no. No. <laughs> like, there's a lot going on there, and it's so oh, funny. My- it's fucking wonderful. And you have and I and I think to wrap this whole particular element of this up, I, I would I would like to touch on the the end of Fields a little bit more. He did increasingly consume alcohol to the point where he was suffering from the the, the tremors as they call it, amongst other elements of this. And you know, uh, as somebody who has had those those shakes <laughs> from before quitting alcohol. I can tell you that from experience, even if it's on a small level, that Fields was suffering. Mm-hmm. That's not a good thing to go through in any way, shape, or form. And by the time he was at death's door, his last radio appearance ended up being, as stated, within, within the Edgar Berg and Charlie McCarthy realm. Um, and... He gave a spoken word album called, which included his temperance lecture and the day I drank a glass of water at the Les Paul studios. Um, and which was written by Bill Morrow, who was one of Jack Benny's writers. And this was field's last ever performance. Um, and he spent the last less than a year in uh, a sanatorium in Pasadena, California. And on Christmas day, he had a massive gastric hemorrhage and died at the age of 66. Um, I think one of the sad elements of this, and I, and I don't mean to bring it down because, but I do relate to this because I watched fields on screen and I watched the experience and coming up on my own little journey with it. It it is very hard to not look into it in that respects and think about the pain that would have been flowing through him. But I am an optimist at heart and I look at what Fields brought to the world is that he he shared his pain in a way for somebody like you or me to understand how that pain feels through a gift of comedy. And I think that it's one of those reasons why comedians are the ba- bravest people in the world in a lot of respects, because not every comic does this, but a lot of comics are putting their soul on the line just to amuse you. And it behooves you to not just laugh with them or laugh at them, but listen to them. And I listen to Fields. I listen to every single word. And it may take me a while to appreciate every aspect aspect and every angle. But once I've dug into something like the bid broadcast of 1938 again or or Six of a Kind again, because I tend to go back to Burns and Allen the most, he happens to be there. I'm always appreciating him more and more every time I go to him. And I think it's a gift as a testament to his ability. So, John... Thank you for bringing this film to the Ballyhoo and for giving the world some W.C. Fields. I know we're going to want you back, and I think I have a perfect idea of how to bring you back <laughs> because we've talked we talked a little bit about him, but I don't think Burns and Allen would be uh, uh, denied an entry to the Ballyhoo at some point, and I know of some crazy films they were involved in. So <laughs> I am down for that, Zach. I'll tell you what, this, uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, I rarely ever get to talk about W.C. Fields with anyone. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that you have a vocabulary for it and that we that we got to do this, especially for as long as we do, uh, th- this was a real pleasure. This was a real thrill. Uh, this is a fun forum. So uh, in the words of the kumquat guy, more power to you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. And really quickly, tell the folks, 
Tell the folks where they can find John of All Trades and what anything you might be having coming up. So John of All Trades is johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. Uh, I have more than 300 episodes. I am on all the major podcatchers, so that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your pods. Social media is same handle, J-O-A-T pod, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. So... Stay up to date. Facebook is the only place for exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. And you never know who I got coming up. I don't know when this is going to get released, but I guarantee you, if you dig into those archives, if you look around, you will find something that suits you. I've talked to everyone from comedians to entrepreneurs to nonprofit folks to tradespeople to whoever. If there's something you're interested in, I'll bet I have a show about it. So... Look around, stay up to date. Uh, I'm interested in just about everything. And if you trust me as your guide, I'll bet you'll find something you'd like to. I can tell you right now that you must trust this man because he will bring you into occupations you didn't know existed or that you wanted to learn more about, which is a good, which as I said before at the top of the show three hours ago, is a definite <laughs> asset to, um, yes. And um, thank you again, John. Um, again, I do want you back and we'll talk about that down the line here about how to get you back on here because we've got to talk Burns and Allen. We've got to talk some other great comedians in this world. Um, that sounds but- like a plan, brother. Yep, but that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find more about us um, at ballyhoreviewpodcast.com. You can write us on our email at ballyhoreviewpod at gmail.com. Um, on the next episode, we will actually be dealing with another showbiz comedian because we will talk, be talking to author Pam Munter about the 1944 movie Show Business with Eddie Cantor. Uh, Eddie Cantor, uh, most famous to kids today for his appearances on Boardwalk Empire, but he had much more of a legacy attached to him than that also came with a lot of baggage. And we will be talking about that in as much detail as possible. Um, and saddle up guys we're going back to kirk douglas land following that because ryan francis johnson is returning to talk about two weeks in another town directed by vincent minnelli this is the bad and the beautiful spiritual sequel uh so stay tuned for that and then uh after that who knows the future is uncertain um and we'll we'll bring you something fun i promise but until next time folks good night how about my kumquat This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.